0: Lines. live from the divided states of america precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe welcome to your context lens for the american perspective in the left corner i'm your ever vigilant your indefatigable political analyst jamar thomas and i'm joined with malik abdul coming to you live out of our state you guys are listening to fault lines on radio sputnik
1: I was supposed to say, come and live at our station in Washington D.C. I was like, "Wait a minute, I already said that part." How's it going, man? Doing all right? It's good. It's Thursday. It's Thursday. One more day. One it's more been a great day. Week. A lot of we- Great week for news. Yes. Yeah. Fascinating week for news.
0: Uh, oh, just to give the audience a heads up, I will be going to Brazil to cover the elections for Lula. Um, well, Lula and Bolsonaro. And so I will be leaving tomorrow. I will be there
1: for next week. Um, and Manila, will we'll be back. Be back running on with Monday. you. Yes. And then I'll be switching. I'll be. Th- filling in for jamal's so got me all <laughs> over the place okay? i know right it's they like, can't get rid it's of like, me they're just switching spots <laughs> they for can't the most get five. rid of me know that that's <laughs> funny it's like next week you're gonna be here <laughs> taking the spot um, but let's, but today, let's... Like get into some domestic news the united states is in a decisive decade biden said according to a white house pool report according to biden the country will continue to lead on the world stage with both diplomacy and the finest fighting force in the history of the world. The United States will also lead on issues including climate change encountering Russia and Ukraine. Washington has a responsibility to manage the increasing competition with Beijing and does not seek a conflict. Biden added, Isn't it interesting that during the press conference, one of the things that during an election cycle, Biden said that the United States should lead on is countering russia and ukraine because that is according to no poll at the top of the issue of concern for voters former white house chief of staff mark meadows was ordered to travel to atlanta georgia and testify in front of a special grand jury looking into the election interference in the state during the 2020 presidential election the order came down on wednesday and meadows is Lawyer James Bannister said they plan to appeal the decision. Bannister is using a legal strategy that has worked for other witnesses from Texas who were ordered to appear in front of the special grand jury. They argued then that the Georgia special grand jury is not a legitimate criminal grand jury because it lacks authority and therefore, it lacks indictment authority and therefore cannot compel witnesses from other states to appear. Bannister is making the same argument for Meadows in South Carolina. It's important to note that the January 6th committee um, did actually try to bring in Mark Meadows for testimony. But Mark Meadows did give about 10,000 plus documents to the committee. So there's a lot of things out there. We'll see what happens with this case in Georgia. Probably going to throw it out, though. Not going to let him do it. The U.S. Attorney's Office in Manhattan launched a federal criminal investigation into Senator Robert Menendez for matters that, at present, remain unclear. This is according to the Attorney's Office on Wednesday. The scope of the investigation into Menendez is unknown, but at least one subpoena has been sent in the case the report said citing people familiar with the matter the f- senator from new jersey and his office staff are still available to provide official assistance as requested menendez's advisor michael solomon was quoted as saying it should be noted menendez even though the report didn't mention it he's a democrat how about that Moving on, a Michigan state court convicted three men on Wednesday of aiding a 2020 plot to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer in retaliation for COVID-19 pandemic mitigation policies put in place by her government. The Detroit area court found Paul Billard, Joseph Morrison, and Pete Mosuko guilty of providing material support for a terrorist act as well as gang membership in possession of a weapon while committing a felony. All three felony crimes that could land them in prison for 20 years. The three were members of a far-right militia group, the Wolverine Watchmen, who spoke openly of their hatred for government officials, including both elected officials like Whitmer as well as police officer. Something else to note. The defense for this case argued that they were essentially entrapped. Now, the jury didn't seem to buy that argument, but the FBI did acknowledge that they sent agents to infiltrate their little group. So that did happen. But according to the government, they were already planning it before they sent in their people. Or as they say, sent in their people. And more domestic news. A U.S. jury found 40-year-old Daryl Brooks guilty on six counts of intentional homicide and 70 other criminal charges for his car attack on a Christmas parade in Waukesha, Wisconsin, last November. Judge Doro announced on Wednesday, the jury found Brooks guilty on all 76 criminal charges, including six counts of first-degree intentional homicide. Doro said while reading out the jury's verdict. In addition to the intentional homicide charges, Brooks was charged with crimes including first-degree reckless endangerment of safety, hit-and-run resulting in death, felony bell-jumping, misdemeanor battery, and domestic abuse. In international news, President Joe Biden's administration is reportedly mulling scaling back its original Russian oil price cap. Plan, which was designed to choke off Moscow's revenue from crude exports, told you. I'm just gonna say, I told you. <laughs> Washington and the EU, which is the European Union, may have to settle for a more loosely enforced cap in a higher price range than originally proposed and with fewer participants on board. According to media reports, the group of seven, which are the G7 nations, the United States, Japan, Germany, Britain, France, Italy, and Canada and Australia, may end up being the only ones agreeing to abide by the measure fully, as investors display growing skepticism and financial market players run warn of the risk the plan entails, sources close to the issue, were cited as saying. The United States has accelerated the deployment of a modernized B-6112 nuclear bomb at NATO bases in Europe, aiming for the end of 2022 rather than 2023. U.S. online newspaper Political reported on Thursday, according to the paper, the delivery of the upgraded version of the bomb was originally planned for the spring of 2023. However, according to a diplomatic cable, U.S. officials told NATO allies during a closed meeting in Brussels in October that the deployment is now planned for December of this year. The decision was made in light of the Ukraine crisis and perceived threats emanating from Russia Although the Pentagon has repeatedly said that there is no such threat of nuclear arsenals from Russia, but they keep saying again anyway. China's leader Xi Jinping has stated that his country is ready to engage with the United States in an effort to help foster global stability, according to a state broad- state broadcaster, CCTV. Quoting, China is willing to work with the United States to respect each other, coexist peacefully and achieve win-win cooperation and find the right way for China and the U.S. to get along in the new era, which will not only benefit both countries, but also the world. The General Secretary of the Chinese Communist Party said in a letter to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. The United States and its allies are now trying to destabilize the situation on territories bordering. Afghanistan, Russian, Afghanistan, Russian Deputy Foreign Minister Oleg Wowzers. Soromolotov. Siromolotov has told Sputnik, they're going to, trust me, my producers are going to tell me if I got that wrong. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Now, quoting the United States and its allies continue to play their geopolitical games, carefully contributing to the destabilization of the situation, both in Afghanistan and on the territory. The Russian for- deputy foreign minister said, adding, this is a demonstration of the n- a demonstration of the not exactly unknown concept of controlled chaos in action. In more international news, the United States is confident that the U.N. Security Council will adopt a resolution next month to send a multinational force to Haiti to help stabilize the country amid the ongoing crisis. U.S. Assistant Secretary of State for Western Hemisphere Affairs Brian Nichols said on Wednesday, Quoting, I am confident that we will have something in early, in November, both a resolution and leadership for the force. Nichols said, in the press conference noting that the multinational force was requested by the Haitian government. On this day in history, 1962, Black Saturday, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, an American spy plane is shot down over Cuba and the Navy drops warning depth charges on Soviet Marines. In 1982, China announces its population has reached one billion plus people and in 1986, British government deregulates financial markets in a big bang, enhancing London's status as a financial capital while increasing income inequality. These are your headlines for today, October 27th. You are listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. Right on
0: One of the um, stories that I wanted to get to had to do with, where is it? Oh, shiny object. So the reason I kept saying that the um, price cap idea was nonsense was, you know, it's like, okay, this is a new shiny object that these guys have come up with. Every other plan that they've come up with at this point has only drove the price up higher. So it's like, okay, well, and Russia's we, still doing very well economically. Exceedingly <laughs> well. What, $50 billion more than what they had prior the year. Um, Ruble has stabilized as one of the highest currencies um, against the dollar, whereas the pound and the euro has basically collapsed. If this is winning, I don't want any more of that. Um, no, I, my reasoning was, for one, the moment that China, India, and Brazil say we're against it, then it's dead on arrival right off the bat. Um, on top of that, the mechanism that they were going to try to do to that through we're going to be sanctions against the various places that we're basically carrying uh, russia can come in some own ships and come up with its own insurance all of that stuff and so it's like okay so a russia can replace the mechanism that you guys are say you're using and two half of the world said they're against it including many european states who weren't all that much thrilled by this because their assumption was the price of oil was going to go up but gas was going to go up i mean so it's like you take one action And you don't think about, okay, what's the Russian response? So you steal the money. You steal their currency reserves from various banks. And on top of that, you say, okay, um, we're going to pass sanctions. And so we still expect to get your oil and gas, but we're not really going to give you anything for it because you're not allowed to use our currencies. So you basically want the oil and gas for free? Yes, that's what we want. Russia says, okay, fair enough. Pay us some rubles. If your currency has no value to us because we can't use your currency, fair enough, pay us some rubles. Then you get all of this hyperventilation from Europe as if Russia was going to give you a product for free. It made no sense at all, and yet they still did it. And I kept asking myself, they can't be this stupid. And yet, apparently they are. It's astonishing. And so now the thing is we're going to forcibly keep the price of oil down, okay? That means that you're going against not just Russia but also an oil cartel, OPEC who was like, mm. we don't like this. Now, you can add an element of it, and we just found out. There was an article that came out basically saying that Biden was flabbergasted because he believed that they had a deal to increase the amount of barrels going all the way out to December. And not only did they not increase it, they cut it by 2 million barrels. And so the Biden administration, apparently many other Democrats who were in on this, despite Biden continuously saying, we're not there to discuss oil, we're not there to
1: discuss oil, well, apparently they were. Well, how can you think you had a deal? Is it, it was a handshake. Because I, I, I'm wondering. It was a handshake, Malik. Something...
0: Oh, I'm sorry. It was a fist bump. He did NBS with a fist bump. Fist bump diplomacy.
1: Because I don't know. That doesn't make any sense. I thought before. well, first of all, for any president of the United States yeah. or any world leader to say, I thought we had a deal. Oh, you that's so embarrassing. My question is going to okay, okay, well, where's this? Yeah. Where's, where's, it the, written pa- now? where's the paperwork? Yeah. Where's the memo? Where's the person in the meeting? Where's something? Because otherwise what you're describing is and we know Biden is a little aged. Um we're describing what did they used to call those gentlemen's agreement? Yeah. Just the handshake. Yeah, it's a handshake. Is, is that, that our it's politics, bro? This is politics. I mean like the handshake, that sounds
0: nice, but fact of the matter is the US president got embarrassed on the national stage. Not only did Again, he Again. I mean like and, a
1: couple of times And actually. it's in the pages of the New York Times. And, and then what what I'm actually noticing is in contrast to Okay, Donald Trump, whatever. Yeah. Um the world is not rallying because there was this idea that, oh my goodness, we just need to get Donald Trump out of here mm-hmm. because all the world leaders hate America now. The world hates America. Joe Biden gets on stage, then the world is gonna rally around right. Joe Biden. Well, the world leaders aren't actually rallying around Joe, and I mean none, even our buddy in um Canada, yeah. Trudeau, no one's embracing. What Biden is doing, even <laughs> publicly, like yeah. they're not coming out. Joe Biden is a strong leader. Nobody's saying America that. is the f- strongest country in the world. Yeah. Our, no one's
0: nobody's saying, nobody's that. saying that. Yeah. And you get Wall Street Journal who basically says Saudi Arabia mocks Joe Biden behind his back. Mocking the U.S. president, and I
1: imagine he's not. They're just the only ones that we know about. Yeah, but you know that this is happening elsewhere. That oh, they're yeah. looking like WTF. Yeah, this guy. Like has you guys lost are it. talking about what we're doing. Like, do you see what's going on in your country? Yeah, with that guy. Yeah, he doesn't know which way to go. Is it? I you know? I'm stuck in the rose garden. I'm lost in the rose garden. Um. Yeah, it's super
0: weird. I mean, when you really think about it, in those terms. I mean, all things being equal, the president of the United States publicly put out. I'm not going to Saudi Arabia for oil and gas because I'm still going to treat them like a pariah. You go, you make a deal with that quote unquote pariah. That pariah then turns around, he and disrespects says, him. Yeah, by going to his daddy. Yes. Oh, I mean, he said, "I'm going to make a pariah." He said the thing with Khashoggi was, you know, beyond the pale, and yeah, it was. You had a guy to bone. So fair enough, right? It's not that I take issue with him making Saudi Arabia pariah, but it was always a pariah thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, this wasn't that didn't a change. Tr- yeah, that had <laughs> not changed at all. That was true with Obama, <laughs> across presidents, across multiple presidents. You had no issue with dealing with that country at all. I mean, this whole rules based order stuff. This guy, they were going to have a one and it for driving. Put it in perspective. They were having people crucified. Right. I mean, even the mass executions that these guys were having. At what point did these guys become this kind of love and light place that um, MBS messed up? That wasn't a of was reality. No, this was embarrassing. The U.S. president, I mean, and it shows this kind of loss of soft power in Mm. a way i mean do we really like could we have seen this with obama for example could we have even seen this with trump for example i don't think so i don't think so either i think they really like they angered saudi arabia that's what it boils down to and if you remember last time joe biden went to saudi arabia um, mbs gave him a lesson basically saying look if you keep going around telling countries what they should shouldn't be then you're gonna have very few friends i mean Mm. He's sitting mm-hmm. him down, giving the president of the United States a lesson on friends and enemies. And look, this is kind of a realist political thing, right? I mean, all things but equal. Their point is, yes, we're a backwards theocratic country, but you need us, buddy. And at the point where Biden is like, "No, we don't need you. We can go it alone, whether that's with Russia, whether it's with China. Hell, even if that's Europe, um, eating through Europe, we can do it alone. And the reality of it is you
1: can't. You right. can't. And you know something else that I'm noticing very quickly, it. I'm not even seeing just because we talk about international politics Mm -hmm. every single day Mm -hmm. here. And in our discussions, with our discussions, with our discussions, with our guests, with our research, it seems is not it seems like the United States has the most bellicose position when it comes to Ukraine. Yes. Yeah. Out of every extreme. I mean, look at what I mean. Look, and Biden just said yesterday. And I was um, because so part of the headlines is Biden talking about how um, the United States will lead on issues including climate change and countering Russia in Ukraine. Like, what? Do you, you're this is a press pool. Why are we talking about leading in this? What's going on in Ukraine? Like, right. It's just such is Zelensky odd. the president of that yeah. country? And more importantly,
2: how are Why you going to do— have do... to be the
1: leader of the world, even though, I mean, we're giving the most money, but—
0: <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Not to mention, how are you doing climate and Ukraine? How are you doing both? Like, that's, that's so warm. And one war. has nothing to do with the other. Not, I mean, look, if you are going to go—if you're going to start a war, and that war is going to end up on the issue of oil and gas, Mm -hmm. And your countries are getting to the point where, I mean, all of these European economies have all this flowery language on climate and everything else. These guys are using coal plants. They're trying to Mm -hmm. restart nuclear power plants. They're telling people go out and chop wood. Your own wood. Yeah. What the hell is that? I mean, this is Europe. This is not like someplace in Africa. After a while, they're going to say stop burning your own poo um, (laughs) in order to use it. That causes blindness and everything else. But what? You want to be cold or blind? Pick your choice. I mean, the idea that this is Europe is just appalling. And, yeah, I agree with you. This is not a situation— this notion of leadership, I don't think this is strength at all. I think this is somewhat of a show of weakness. I mean, you basically put all your powers on the line at this moment and you are in an economic war that you are clearly losing. I mean, look, don't take my word for it. You can look at The Economist. You can look at the other honest publications that talk about the Russian economy at this point. The ruble has solidified. and stabilized. The Russian economy is stabilized. Europe hasn't stabilized at all. In fact, it is in, unforeseeable when it will stabilize. Mm. And so it's like, OK, so a country or a continent that I well, I don't know, place that I'd love to travel to is now going to take the hit for the foreseeable future. The U.S. is unclear on what is even going to happen here. I mean, they're talking about what, two point eight million jobs being lost by mm-hmm. 2023. And so it's like, that's not winning, man. It's right. not winning. I mean, and, and the idea that Joe Biden is like, we're going to lead on this. We're going to keep pushing on this. You got what, 20, 30 lefties. Quote unquote lefties, let's just call them Democrats, who came out tepidly saying, maybe we need to think about peace. And they were shouted down to the point where the very next day they had to come out, we're sorry, we're withdrawing the idea for peace, and we back
1: Biden to the point where Ukraine wins. And it's like, what? Think about that. The Democrat, this is the Democratic Party that yes. we're talking about. Uh, not the party, is supposedly, you know, not the party of warmongers or, you know. Give me your take on that, by the way. This. Flipping polarity. I
0: mean, is this just Trump? Mm-hmm. Like, is this cult a personality where the person is such a dominant personality in regards to the party or the political space that the party conforms around him even if it breaches certain things? Like, for example, Donald Trump and Rand Paul used to have a relationship with each other. That's mm-hmm. fascinating, right? Rand Paul is clearly anti-war. He's one of those people who've been ideologically, almost religiously so, against war. Great. No issue with that at all. Um, the fact that he's working in coordination with Donald Trump gets across to some level where Trump's head is on this issue of war and peace. Yes, he wants to make a ton of money. Yes, he wants all sorts of popularity. Yes, he wants to be loved. But he's sketchy on the issue of war. It just, like, I, I don't know how anybody, um, like, argues that. Even with the Iran stuff, where there were multiple opportunities that could have spiraled he off. Was into- not,
1: he's Trump is not an interventionist. Yes. That's just not his thing. Well, Trump didn't even have, outside of his businesses, He didn't have any, you know, interest in international geopolitics. I mean, that just wasn't his thing. I honestly think what happened is that there was, you know, Obama, as far as uh, Republicans are concerned, Obama gave us a lull of some sort um, because there were many people who were unhappy with what was happening during the Bush administration, including Republicans, like many conservatives who did not like our intervention, you know. The invasion, the drone bombings, all that stuff. So Obama comes in, you know. We still don't like it. Mm-hmm. But then when you're talking about Obama in Syria and many of the other places, around, Libya, Democrats Syria, then had yeah. to defend that. Yeah. So they didn't like this type of intervention during the George Bush years. Then they had to actually defend it. And then they got quiet. Then they got quiet. By the time Trump came in, things totally flipped in, in, in a very weird way. So mm-hmm. normally you wouldn't, when Donald Trump um, put the head out on um, Solomon, so, Right. Um, right. you know, usually there wouldn't be a lot of criticism from the other side. So Soleimani, right. There was a lot of criticism for Democrats. for They were criticizing Donald Trump for ordering that hit in the same way that they would not. what well, they have not done. Well, Obama had a kill list. Let's be
0: very clear. He had a literal kill list. And yes. there was publication saying that he, the White House was wondering, why does
1: the kill list keep getting longer if it's working? And, and that's my thing. So Democrats had to defend it during the Obama administration. Trump was the interruption of everything. Yeah. And I think now they're having to grapple with that history. And so when you have people who are the, you know, progressive wing of the caucus, you know, agree with them or not, they actually are sharing the sentiment of, I would imagine, the overwhelming majority Agreed. of American people. Agreed. But the institutions are such the the um, that... Now I'm sure somebody from Nancy Pelosi office and maybe Steny Hoyer a couple of, like or even the business. White House yeah. said, nope, you can't do this. But we, you know, we shouldn't just dismiss that as eh, like a shrug. We're talking about they were arguing. Well, not even arguing. They were um, They're just like for peace talks. asking For peace yeah. talks. And the party said, don't do that. No, you're making Biden look bad. So you not even yeah. argue in favor of peace. For the anti-war party
0: or anti-war grouping of that party. I mean, it's astonishing. I mean, it was tepid as tepid can be. And even, even that hard, was too you right. much. It
1: wasn't hard-hitting yeah.
0: criticism. The Biden administration needs to get to some level of peace talks now. They didn't do that. No. We um, humbly beseech this administration <laughs> <laughs> to speak with Putin on some idea of a peace talk. I mean, like, this is embarrassing on so many levels. Uh, Rachel Maddow was a bellwether for me. Rachel Maddow... You would talk about, you know, the drone bombings. Her and Keith Oberman. Mm-hmm. Oh man, oh, they, they were amazing going after the Bush administration on that stuff. Mm-hmm. And you get this kind of framing of, okay, well, this is what the left is, right? And then Obama gets in office and they shut up. Yep. And it's like, okay, something's weird here. He's still doing the bombings. He's still invading various countries. MSNBC is not being honest about Libya why are they acting this way? This was when I was like first getting into politics where I'm Mm. like, okay, this is strange.
1: So you you noticed the shift real time because some people didn't notice that shift. I noticed when Obama was on his way out Mm -hmm. because it was like the Michael Steele thing was big for me where
0: Michael Steele was like, look, have you seen Libya recently? And it's like, so I need to hear from a Republican Mm -hmm. how bad the um, Democratic president screwed up in Libya while all of these other media organizations pretty much hit it or even worse, made it look like if it was some kind of this is, you know, a championship of international power and that type of stuff. He turned to place place a basket case. He had the first black president presiding over
1: a situation where they were selling slaves for 400 bucks. I mean, like— and, and running as an anti-war president, well, technically, I believe that if Obama was in the Senate, he had the convenience of not being in the Senate to vote for the Iraq
0: right. War. Right. Well, that was his reason for getting out that Senate fast. His yeah. thought was— the, more, the longer I stay in the Senate, the more stuff that's going to be lumped on me, the more difficult votes I'm going to have to take, and they're going to look at me, and it's going to scar me if for my political party. If he in the
1: Senate, he would have joined Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden um, and many of other senators and voted for the Iraq War. I never actually believed. He, yeah. he just had the convenience of not being in office. It's always easy to say what you wouldn't yeah. do when you weren't in the position. If, if that was me, <laughs> if I was in that position. It's kind of like Donald Trump, because, you know, Donald Trump says that, well— if you, um, you know, if, if I was in office, no, you would have done it too. Yeah, Trump. yeah.
0: You would have done it too. I mean, what, Barbara Lee I, was the only person or something like yes, that? Yes,
1: Barbara Lee, Representative Barbara Lee out of California. Yeah, she did, yeah and, she was, and she, I mean, that speech was amazing. It was mm-hmm. so pressing it
0: because her thing was basically like, look, we are going to end up in a situation and she's, and you could see the pain on her when she was taking that vote because everybody else was basically against her and taking that vote. Barbara Lee ended up being right. I mean, but that's, the difference between a vote of conscience versus this kind of ideological framing. Look, those people who were in the Democratic Party that sent that letter from the House of Progressive Caucus, well, they might have had a flicker in them of like, all right, maybe we should be saying something about this, especially since our constituents are maybe giving us heat on this issue. Doesn't matter. All things but equal, you come out, you tell the president, he should take this kind of peaceful... We don't want to hear it. They're it down in, I would imagine, their party, and even probably from aspects of media. So... Um yeah, let's do this. Let's take a break. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas and with Malik Abdul back in a moment.
2: Fault Lines. Fault Lines.
0: Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with Malik Abdul, coming to you live out of our station in Washington D.C. And let's—I want to go to Wyatt. He's on the ground. I want to get it to him um, sooner rather than later. Wyatt, what's going on, man? How you doing this morning? I am okay. How about yourself, Jamal? We are good. Uh, that seemed to have been a mistake. You weren't necessarily communicated. So I appreciate you um, giving us like, basically coming on despite you're going to a protest currently. Correct? You're still in France. Um, and you're going to a protest. What's going on there?
3: Protest that has not occurred yet. It's scheduled for about half an hour from now. Uh, Today is the second day of protests across France in just 10 days. And uh, we know that widespread transit issues aren't necessarily expected today, unlike the big protests that are slated for two weeks from now, the so-called Black Thursday here in November. Um, when we do expect that unions will have a total shutdown of the metro system, uh, but here in Paris today, protests are expected to be centered in the area of Montparnasse. Um, but rallies are really planned for all throughout the country in a couple dozen cities. And these protests are being led by the CGT or the Confédération Générale du Traval, the General Workers' Confederation. They're calling for an increase in wages. Pensions and scholarships, they have about a 10-point plan where they want the minimum wage to be increased to 15 euros per hour. They want for salary and wage parity between men and women. They want for a substitute sort of income, a social security wage for all the unemployed that would come in at that minimum wage level. And they want an increase in pension payments for retirees also at that 15 an hour level. Uh, They want an allowance uh, sort of scholarship for students who are looking for their first job and increased wages for apprentices and interns. And they want rents to be capped at 20% of household income, the value added tax. They want that to be capped at 5.5% on basic necessities like food and energy. And then they want to bring fuel prices down by subsidizing them with the profits of multinational oil companies. And finally, they want the end of exemptions for businesses from having to contribute to Social Security and taxes. And so uh, we have a pretty ambitious agenda. And, you know, last week, the protests in the street were headed by the CGT, but included a number of different political parties. It looks like so far today that this will mostly be the CGT, although the uh, individual branches of the NUPES party, the uh, which is closely aligned with Lion Insoumise, the unbowed, uh, the party of Jean-Luc Mélenchon. Uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, there's been kind of a rift in between him and the CGT recently. But individual branches, it seems like, are going to be cooperating with the CGT today.
0: So wait, are they going to call for a general strike or what? Meaning... This seems to be organized. This is in direct relation to basically a few costs, inflation, et cetera, et cetera.
3: Yeah, so this is a one-day strike right now. That's what's happening right right now is a one-day strike. Uh, big, big rallies more so than necessarily attempting to shut down transportation. Um, but, you know, it's kind of a – as I understand it, you know, obviously these protests haven't actually happened yet. Uh, but as I understand it, uh, or at least the protest here in Paris, uh, as I understand it, uh, it's kind of a, a warm up for the protests in two weeks from now, which are expected to be uh, much more significant.
0: Oh, I see. So the protests in a few weeks, that's the one that's expected to be much larger and have much more influence in regards to shutting down um, France or Paris.
3: Yes. Yeah. yeah. So the, that's the, the Black Thursday protest that I referenced uh, that is in two weeks from now. That is November tenth. Um, so this is kind of a, I think a, a sort of a trial we'll and a little bit of a test to figure out exactly what kind of support that they have. And, um, you know, obviously this is pretty speculative since, you know, it's, uh, no, it's we still haven't, haven't gotten there yet.
0: What is the government doing about this, by the way? I mean, all things been equal, they've had inflation. Macron have come out basically saying they're on this kind of weird wartime economy footing, despite the fact that they haven't necessarily declared war. Um, and there seems to be this expectation that the public is going to take the hit for this, where the public is saying no. I mean, for the longest time, you had the yellow vest movement going off like, what, like a year almost um, with 70, 80 percent approval. And within a very short period of time now, you have this coming to fruition. What is the government doing? Are they giving anything away and trying to stem the protests or are they taking more of a, let's say, a hardline line um, approach to dealing with these guys?
3: Well, they're really taking more of a divide and conquer strategy. So they are trying to basically work with these different individual unions one by one, not as a Uh, broad swath, not as, as, you know, taken in their entirety. Uh, And in this way, they were able to stem protests that rocked the country for several weeks that uh, especially exacerbated the fuel shortages that were being held by the oil refinery workers. So just last week, they finally negotiated a settlement with them. Uh, Nuclear power plant workers uh, in the past uh, four or five days also ended up with an agreement with the government Um, So the strategy at this point seems to kind of be to pick apart the movement and negotiate with the groups individually. Obviously, all of this anger is coming uh, after the government very recently, the neoliberal government of Jean-Luc Mélenchon, invoked what's called Article 49.3, which is kind of an emergency measure by which uh, they were able to pass through a one-year budget measure, uh, sort of an emergency budget measure completely bypassing the National Assembly. So obviously a very undemocratic measure, uh, not a very popular one. The uh, parties on the Communist Party and uh, the more hard right parties were pretty were, were more or less united in opposition to this and brought forth a vote of no confidence, but that narrowly failed just a few days ago. So now I think we, today we will get a sense for where the power is, is it in the legislature, or is it in the streets?
0: Wow, that is super interesting. What, the, the, the issue of the no confidence vote, that's because Macron has basically lost his governing majority. And so you got far right parties and far left parties that are basically trying to set the legislative um, agenda on some way or at the very least push back against Macron. So what is it? I mean, have you had the ability to speak to anybody on the ground to get their take about their perception of this? Meaning, how is the public regarding these protests in the Yellow Vest movement, I think it was like 70, 80 percent approval. And by the way, Macron did the same thing. He also tried to shave away public support by offering a few things, whereas it looks as if, OK, the government is giving way and the government is giving enough where the numbers could go down in regards to the number of people who are basically supporting a movement. If something like that is happening here, have you had the opportunity to talk to anybody on the ground?
3: Well, you know, as I noted, the, the protest here in Paris hasn't actually happened yet. You know, if you want to get me back on tomorrow, I'm sure I'll have significantly more to offer on that front. Um, just in terms of my conversations with people about the political dynamics, obviously there's a sense that um, society's pretty greatly fractured right now, that uh, there are a bunch of different kind of particular groups all pursuing their own sort of agenda um, and not terribly unified at the moment. Hence, I think, you know, you you see the ability of the Macron government to to kind of pick apart the opposition uh, and to keep them effectively neutralized, even though they don't necessarily have a majority in the parliament. Uh, That doesn't mean that there's necessarily a coherent political force that uh, is going to be able to replace them um, effectively. You know, so there are these these big sort of stress lines that come down in terms of things like uh, the environmental movement. Right. So that that is nominally a kind of left-wing uh, movement, but then you have big divisions there between the hard right, that hard left, uh, over things like that, um, and even, you know, the communists aren't necessarily in lockstep with a lot of the environmental movement's demands. Um, so, you know, it's it's kind of a difficult moment for any one particular group to seize the momentum and to build a large enough coalition to ultimately push Macron out. Mm, wow. Do
0: is there any potential for that? I mean, all things being equal, if they're trying to get um, a no confidence vote, like you said, they're trying to get rid of Macron at that point. I mean, who would even be a follow up to Macron? I mean, has there been any conversation on who they would want to take over, even if they were able to get the no confidence vote? Meaning, what are they trying to accomplish in the sense in regards to the government itself? Because the Yellow Vest movement also had this notion that the government they wanted it to collapse. Um, who are they thinking of, or is there even anybody who's in a running other, other than Macron?
3: Well, the left would probably fall behind Jean-Luc Mélenchon. That's the leader of La Insoumise, the unbowed, uh, this kind of new political party. Um, On the right, you have
0: uh, a battle. Mélenchon was already either president or prime minister. I think he was president. He was massively unpopular. I think he was like 20, 30 percent approval rating. And so they're trying to put him back in office.
3: Uh, he, you, I think you might be thinking of, uh, of, uh, da, 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 a different politician. Okay. As far as I'm aware, he's, he's never been, uh, the, the prime minister. Okay. Um, Fair enough. I could get that wrong. Yeah. <laughs> but, I think, okay, we that uh, So, uh, on the right hand, on the right side, uh, you know, you have this battle in the national front. It's kind of a, a fight to see who is going to succeed Marine Le Pen. Um, there uh, was a guy named uh, Luis Aliot and uh, uh, Jordan Bardella. Um, basically, these are the kind of front runners for who will take over, um, you know, uh, here in November when they decide who's going to lead the party after Marine Le Pen steps down after 11 years. Um, so right now, as, I, as I noted, it's a, it's a time of kind of great turmoil and a great uncertainty. Let me ask you
0: this. Do you have any more reporting on what's taking place in the UK in regards to Risi Sunuk and the way that our president basically pronounces it? Uh, in terms of, well, just in general in, in him taking power, basically has anything else happened from the standpoint of him taking power? For example, he was in PMQs yesterday where he, that was his first PMQs, um, is like, I guess my thought is, what is the British public coming up with in regards to it? But you may not even be covering the British public at this point after you left. I mean, at this point, you're just in France. So that's fair enough. You probably don't necessarily know what's going on in the ground um, in the UK. It was more so, how is the public regarding Sunak after Liz trust's collapse? That's what I was trying to get at.
3: Yeah, I'm not sure if there have been any opinion polls that have come out about this yet. Um I know that he is basically continuing in broad strokes with the legacy of the conservatives before him. He is keeping on with Ben Wallace as defense minister, uh, Jeremy Hunt as his chancellor. Um, So if that gives you a sense of basically the military and economic objectives, they are pretty unchanged, judging by sort of the cast and crew. Um, I I do find him to be a significantly more competent figure than this kind of bumbling list Trust, I think he will be more effective in terms of implementing this kind of neoliberal austerity agenda. Uh, you know, just from the statements that he's made so far, um, with all of his calls with, uh, his, his, um, counterparts in the U S, um, the Irish prime minister, He keeps reiterating over and over that, you know, Ukraine is at the top of the agenda. So just going on, you know, kind of what we're hearing, these public statements, uh, it seems that there is every intention to maintain both this this aggressive sort of hawkish anti-Russia posture abroad and then this uh, war on the poor at home.
0: Last question on France for the moment. Um, France is one of the major economies in Europe. And of course, Macron has these kind of, I would argue he considers himself a European, um, even more so, or at the very least in optics, even more than being French, which mm-hmm, probably would take issue with me saying that, but all things been equal, he tends to see himself as a follow-up to Angela Merkel. Um, has there been any conversation there in the um in France about Ukraine that you've come across, either in media or in the way that people have been talking about it? And has that come up as one of the issues in regards to the potential protests that were taking place in the past or for that matter is it expected to come up as one of the issues going forward in the protests coming on black thursday
3: remind me what you said the, the what what issue
0: so the issue of ukraine meaning how is the public regarding that there is that is that being meaning is the public connecting the issues of inflation and in economy to ukraine
3: there are people that are making the connections and um, publicly but as the, is the case in the us they are very much marginalized. They tend to be on the hard left, the hard right. Uh, by and large, you don't see a whole lot of kind of, especially here in Paris, more of a metropolitan population. They consider themselves to be pretty educated, liberal sort of populace. Uh I think these people are going to be kind of the least affected economically by these sanctions. And um, thus, you know, kind of as a function of that, they're going to be, uh, some of the last people to draw these conclusions, these hard truths about what these sanctions mean, who they're actually impacting. You know, it's not Vladimir Putin, obviously it's not really the Russian people so much as it is, uh, the working people of Europe. Um, I I imagine if I strayed a little bit further out of the city, I would get some, uh, differing views, but you know, just in, in going around, uh, you don't hear that kind of people talking about Ukraine necessarily, but you do see, for example, passing the Paris Mint. Uh, you do see, fl- you know, flying above the building, the, the French flag, the Ukrainian flag. So in the same sense that you see these kind of symbols in Washington, uh, where the government wants to make sure that it's very much seen to be in lockstep with the Kiev regime, you see a very similar pers- uh, dynamic here as well in Paris.
0: Wyatt, thank you for this man, I really appreciate it. Wyatt reads Sputnik News reporter and analyst, He's in France right now covering the protests that are about to take place in within an hour. Um, let's do this. Let's take a break. We're going to come back. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas. and with Malik Abdul. Back in a moment.
2: Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome
0: back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with Malik Abdul coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. And we're going to do the monologue at a different time today. We're going to do it now. Um, And there are parts of this that I really want to have a conversation about, and some of it is just based off of the conversation from yesterday, um, the debate. And it's this interesting thing that the President of the United States, your President, with a 39%, a screaming in pain, 39% approval rating, is getting us closer and closer to the brink of war. And I to be honest, even the framing of it. You've had Scott Ritter and you've had Mark Sloboda on, and they've given slightly different points of view, but I don't think they're as different as what they seem. Scott Ritter would make the argument that the military itself does not want to get involved in a situation in a war with Russia, and that the dirty bomb and everything else, that behind the scenes, the military is basically telling these guys to cut it out. But Mark makes this point about the framing of all of this. All of this stuff is weird from the standpoint of framing, if indeed you're not necessarily trying to give yourself a potential for something later on. Meaning the American public has never necessarily engaged this particular conversation on whether or not it is willing to get into a nuclear war for the issue of Ukraine. And as I pointed out, the issue of Ukraine is not really about Ukraine. So all things been equal, whereas the president or for that matter, European leaders and their vassal states, they may say Ukraine is winning. Ukraine is um, fighting a good fight. Ukraine is doing this. Ukraine is doing that. All things been equal, they're not in it. Because they care all that much about Ukraine. They're in it because they care about their global hegemony. Meaning, this is not them being noble. This is not them standing there saying, we're gonna take this on the chin for this other country. It's not that. They're doing this specifically. Like they said, many of the countries were willing to fight to the last dead Ukrainian if that meant Russia did not win on their own terms. And so you get Joe Biden who's been screaming about Armageddon, you get um Russia who's basically talked about the dirty bomb thing, and you get. Other provocations, I mean, you must explain to me what on earth does they, do they believe is going to happen in this situation? And what does it mean if NATO loses militarily and for that matter, economically? What I'm getting here is that it is possible that these guys under no circumstances are going to be willing to take this loss on the chin and by one step after the next, after the next, slowly, inexorably, getting to the point where a decision will have to be made, will we put troops into a certain part of Ukraine in order to defend that territory? Meaning, do we put those troops in the West or do we put those troops, let's say, in somewhere in Odessa, Russia speaking region? And in both of those situations, it seems that this talk about nuclear proliferation or Russia and nukes and all this other stuff is directly related to trying to create a framework early on. So when it comes to an eventuality of, okay, do we do this or not? That all things being equal, the framework would have already been created for us to come up with a justification to do it. Whether it was weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, whether it was the Gulf of Tonkin, all of these things were things that was a pretext was created in order to get us further involved in those particular dilemmas. The difference here, though, is that this level of brinksmanship is with another nuclear power. And this level of brinksmanship is taking place where we are feeling the effects of it in a way that we don't typically feel the effects of when we're destroying, toppling, or going into another country. The country that screamed weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, even though there were no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, and then went in and invaded, killing a million Iraqis, that is the same country that right now is screaming about Armageddon and screaming about tactical nukes. And if they did it in Iraq, what makes you think that that framing that was created for that, It's not necessarily being done here with all of the talk of nukes. Otherwise, it doesn't quite make sense. The U.S. population, or let's say the mainstream media, has given this perspective of this conflict that doesn't entirely make sense. An expeditionary force was able to take 20% of the territory working with the dumbass republics. From the media standpoint, in the United States, Russia is apparently losing. And because they're apparently losing, they're going to go from that expeditionary force to nukes, which on its face makes no sense. Add to that this idea that every time something happens, whether it's Gazprom, whether it's the Zabrosyan nuclear power plant, or whether it's the Azov battalion in the prison camp, it's always Russia bombing its own people or doing things that against its own interests. Meaning they're going to spend billions of dollars on a pipeline, then turn around and blow up the pipeline, despite having all control and power over what's get exported in that pipeline. If you're doing that with these minor items, what would happen if there was a dirty bomb? What would happen if there was some other escalatory act that the U.S. turns around and says, Russia did it? My point is, are they doing this only to do it? Or are they doing this with the idea of giving themselves options and potentials later on? Which is basically, how far do we want to take this? They may not even know at this point. They may just allow themselves the potential to go further if indeed they want to go further. The 101st Airborne Division is sitting right now in Romania. Now, you must understand, a lot of politics is brinksmanship, especially on this issue of war and peace. Why is the 101st Airborne sitting in Romania? And what is the expectation of that 101st Airborne? What, a few thousand men lightly armored? Is the expectation that these guys are going to go in and fight Russia? I don't think that's the expectation. I think the expectation is, I dare you to strike Meaning, if you're going to go into Odessa or if you're going to go into some of the, some other region at that point, will the Russian military attack u s servicemen? It's that. And all things been equal, considering that I would imagine the countries don't want a nuclear war. then the only way I can regard that is a certain level of brinksmanship. From the standpoint of Iran, for example, take Donald Trump, Donald Trump kill Soleimani, murder Soleimani. Iran responded with missile strikes on various bases. Trump said those missile strikes weren't that big of a deal, even though they clearly were a big deal. Many of the people were injured and wounded, even though I don't think there were any deaths. But at that point, Donald Trump could have went further. And what was the thought? Neither side wanted a war, meaning the reason that both sides could take the escalatory action is because both sides understood that at the end of the day, that neither side wanted to go into a larger Conflict. And so they can use brinksmanship as almost an argument, a meta argument that's taking place over the actions that they're doing. So, yeah, Trump kills Soleimani. Yeah, Iran responds. Trump put the things, and, and what is he doing? Even these flyby missions where he is basically this maximum pressure campaign that he basically applied to Iran. Neither side wanted a war. Both sides use that point that neither side wanted a war to basically take escalatory acts, believing that the other side wouldn't respond in a way that would be cataclysmic. I think the same thing is taking place here. All things been equal, all of this nuclear talk sets a framework every bit as much as was taking place in Syria. What did Obama come out of that? Red line, nuclear, um, chemical weapons, red line, wink, wink. And then you get um, weapons or chemical weapons Potential elements of chemical weapons being moved by terrorists into the various countries in Syria with the idea of releasing a strike in order to get the U.S. further ensconced into the conflict. Obama set the framework by which the U.S. would get involved into the conflict. Then all of a sudden, hey, we have a, a chlorine thing. But they didn't call it chlorine. They called it a chemical strike. More to the point. Even changing around the records, I forget the name of the organization, but the OPC, even OPCW, even getting them to dummy up the records and change the records from the original team that was on the ground to get across something that wasn't true, that he gassed his own people. My point here is that the reason that they did that was because the pretext was already created that would allow the president to get further involved into a conflict that he certainly wanted to get involved in and get involved in more directly. Obama kept saying there's no boots on the ground. There was nonsense. There were boots on the ground. And not just boots on the ground, backing terrorists in that region to try to overthrow the Assad government. There were weird reports in the um, newspaper of groups backed by the CIA attacking and fighting groups backed by the military. The weirdest thing ever. He was basically trying to play both sides and in doing so, lost both. My point is that it's a pretext that was basically being set and arranged in a way that would allow the U.S. to say, well, we said if this happened, we were going to get involved. Is that what's taking place in Ukraine? It's one thing for the military leaders to not necessarily want to escalate it to something that is a larger conflict. It's a different from the standpoint of the political leaders and the machinations of those political leaders, especially if from their perspective, it is existential from the standpoint of their hegemonic control of the globe. That's what I'm getting at. That all things been equal, putting the 101st Airborne, screaming eagles in that particular situation, is there entirely for if the order goes in to invade Ukraine in order to stabilize and create a little balkanized state of something that's remaining and left over, the question is whether or not they will get attacked. And the belief, I suspect, is that they won't be because nobody wants to escalate to the point of a nuclear war. Russia did the same thing in Syria, right? Will the United States go into those regions and attack Russian troops in order to knock over the Assad government? The answer turned out to be no. And I suspect the U.S. is thinking something very similar here on this issue of Ukraine. I'm making the point that the president of the U.S. has basically led this country down this particular pathway without really having an honest argument or discussion about this particular pathway and where this pathway ultimately leads. The media co-signed this by basically going in lockstep with the president to exude or exclude any other information that gives larger context to what is taking place on the ground at the exact time where it is the most important thing in the world for them to do, considering that your president may get you involved in something where you look back on, clear as day that you were heading into that particular direction, meaning history always seems as if you're inextricably heading into a particular direction, and yet never really having an honest discussion or conversation about the inconsequences of these actions. And then all of them have to turn around and say, well, Ukraine is doing great. Russia's on his back. Ukraine is winning this war. Ukraine is in a stalemate. Because if they explain the truth of it, then the justification for keeping it going becomes somewhat dodgy. I mean, after all, at the point where multiple Ukrainian militaries have basically been destroyed, at the point where the economics of the country seems to be in disrepute, where the energy grid of the country they're basically having roving blackouts in the country and they are printing money with this potential for hyperinflation. This is not indicative of the success of Ukraine and the fact that 100,000 people in Ukraine have basically died, meaning military. I'm unclear on how any of this is to the benefit of Ukraine. We are keeping this war going. In that letter sent by the progressive members, I think 30 members, tepidly, tepidly, just asking for the conflict or peace terms, despite the fact that the US was doing the opposite of that. I mean, keep in mind, when Zelensky was working with a peace deal with Putin during the um, Turkish during Turkey's Turkey's peace conference, there was all sorts of things that Zelensky at that point agreed to. And Boris Johnson jumps in. Cut this out. You're not going to do this. You're not going to allow this. And if you go through with this, you're not going to get to security concerns. So it is monstrously dishonest. But the Biden administration said, well, any deal is going to have to include Zelensky. Really? When Zelensky was trying to do a deal, you basically told him to cut it out or for progressives or lefties, and I can't even call them lefties, just Democrats who basically come around saying, okay, well, um, we're gonna, you know, hold off on negotiations until Ukraine wins this. Under what model do you think Ukraine is going to win this? And I think that's kind of where I'm hitting this at. All things being equal, if it doesn't seem like there's a situation that Ukraine has the potential to win. If NATO is looking at this as a loss to NATO, is a loss of hegemonic control from the standpoint of their ability to dominate the globe, to knock over countries, to be the decider in what basically takes place around the globe using financial might or for that matter military might. If they lose in this, how far will they be willing to go? And that question is monstrous. That question is terrifying. I haven't necessarily seen these practice um, noble leaders that could make these decisions to try to extricate us out of a larger conflict. Let's say Kennedy, for example, in the Cuban Missile Crisis, him walking through the raindrops or dancing between the raindrops in order to get us out of something that could have went monstrously, horrifically bad. Do you honestly believe that a man who you consider often is considered, widely considered, to have mental issues, to be a wisp of his former self, Do you think that man with all the hubris in the world is the guy to get us out of this, considering he is a person that got us in it? And do you think the calls by the exact same people who shouted down those 30 progressives or those 30 democratic lawmakers who came out just asking, beseeching the leader to come up with peace talks, do you really think those shrill voices won't turn into invasion voices if it comes down to it? I think it would. We're in a bad spot. And no, I don't believe a 30%, 39% approval rating guy is going to be the one who gets us out. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas. We'll be Malik Abdul. We'll be back in a moment.
2: Fault Lines. Fault Lines
0: live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and risk exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And in the right corner, I'm joined with Malik Abdul. You guys are listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. There it is. There it Got is. it. Now, when Manila comes back, how is that gonna look?
1: Oh, gee. Oh, that is gonna be a gonna cluster, be totally you know different. what? It least for the first few days, it will be another adjustment for me. But see, remember what I said? They cannot get rid of me, right? Because <laughs> I'm still here. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I, when I was coming here, I used to um, do
0: Lee and Garland show. Mm. I did that show for like a year and a half, maybe two oh, years. Wow. And I would drive up here every week, once, yeah, but once a week. And then my thought was, if you keep showing up. As somebody, they're gonna say, "Give that guy a job." Hey, like, give him a job, now. yeah. <laughs> so I, I feel you on this one, but still, your show is still gonna take place. Um, so there's no issue around that. And so, no, like you said, can't get rid of you. You're gonna be I here think, for a while. I
1: think it's actually great. I get, you know, I get up early, I go home early. I mean, it you know, I mean, can't beat it. Yeah, and can't you get a ton it. of experience, right? Yeah. I mean, it's it's the flag control of the network. So yeah, I was actually telling a friend who works on a, um, you know, another network <laughs> that within the past. Two or three months, I've learned more in international politics than I have in my entire. Oh, I know, right? Because that's not something we really teach. It's in like school. a crash course. You yeah. know how they say when you go to foreign countries and immerse yourself. Oh, yeah. In the language, you learn. Yeah, much faster. It was. It Same was. Same way. Yeah. Because it's. It's been awesome. I mean, I'm talking about Bolsonaro. I'm talking about
0: Lula. Like, who are these people? I didn't know. Who I they met were. this Ethiopian woman the other day, and I was when I realized she was Ethiopian. I started engaging her about like, how do you feel about what's taking place in Ethiopia? What's your preference? She's like, you're telling me about my country. It's like, well, yeah, I yeah. we'll cover international politics. That's yeah. our job,
1: right? That's my thing.
0: Yeah. She was like, I prefer to just keep quiet. It's like, why? Why? Why do you prefer to keep quiet? This is a, you know, because it's one thing to talk about. It's another thing to engage somebody who's basically on the ground or who has family in those countries right. they feel it much mm-hmm. deeply mm-hmm. um so yeah i wanted her take on it she was too sheepish to even bring it up she was like i don't want to talk about it i said like, oh, okay. Wow. i'm not gonna browbeat you into it fair enough um, but let's get in the headlines in the news the united states is in a decisive decade quote unquote biden said according to the white house press pool the country will continue yeah the country will continue to lead on the world stage with both diplomacy and a quote finest fighting force in the history of the world, unquote, Joe Biden said. The United States will lead on issues including climate change, countering Russia and Ukraine, Biden also said. Washington has responsibility to manage the increasing competition with Beijing and does not seek a conflict, Biden added. If you're not seeking a conflict, you are going about it in the weird, most warped ways imaginable. I mean, this is like the policy in order to keep China and Russia separate because they didn't necessarily want these two powerhouses to basically coordinate um, their capabilities. Well, if that was your objective, how monstrously bad you got it. I don't know why I keep saying monstrously, but how horrible you got it. Um, You've done the opposite of that. And like I said, the Biden administration, I think when the history books are written, It was this administration that was the canary in the coal mine. This was the administration that forecast the fall, um, or at the very least, this kind of entry into the multipolar world. Didn't have to happen this quickly. It was brinksmanship all the way through, and it was this kind of aggressive, um, muscular foreign policy. And yeah, it came for naught. If you're going to alienate the rest of the globe and create all of these enemies around the globe, you have a problem. And I suspect that that's what's taking place. Joe Biden was the one who basically was responsible putting it on its head, I suppose, or jumping the shark. Let's keep going. Former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows was ordered to travel to Atlanta, Georgia and testify in front of the special grand jury looking into the election interference in the state during the 2020 presidential election. The order came down on Wednesday and Meadows' lawyer, James Bannister, said they plan to appeal the decision. Bannister is using a legal strategy that has worked for other witnesses from Texas that were ordered to appear in front of the special grand jury. They argue that Georgia's special grand jury is not a legitimate criminal grand jury because it lacks indictment authority and therefore cannot compel witnesses from other states to appear. Bannister is making the same argument for Meadows in South Carolina. Lindsey Graham was also being called to testify, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I don't, it, it's almost like in the back of my mind. I don't entirely remember the um, logistics of it, but there was a stay on his need to testify, but that's a second story. The U.S. Attorney's Office in Manhattan launched a federal criminal investigation into the center, Senator Robert Menendez, for matters that at present remain unclear. Scene four reported on Wednesday. The scope of the investigation into Menendez is unknown, but at least one subpoena has been sent in the case, the report said, citing people familiar with the matter. The senator from New Jersey and his office staff are still available to provide office assistance as requested. Menendez's advisor, Michael Solomon, was quoted as saying, let's keep going. And Michigan State Court convicted three men on Wednesday of aiding 2020 plot. Oh, I'm sorry. A Michigan state court convicted three men on Wednesday of aiding a 2020 plot to kidnap Governor Gretchen Whitmer, in Michigan, and retaliation for COVID-19 pandemic mitigation policies put in place by our government. The Detroit area court found Paul Beller, Joseph Morrison and Pete Munisco guilty of providing, quote, material support, unquote, for terrorist acts as well as gang membership and possession of a weapon while committing a felony. All three felony crimes that could land them in prison for twenty years. The three were members of the far-right militia group called Wolverine Watchmen, who spoke openly of their hatred for the government officials, including both elected officials like Whitmer, as well as her police officers. That case is not that clear though. I mean, many of those people that were involved in that case were feds. Like mm-hmm. you would have a situation like oftentimes they don't want Fed to be a leader of an organization because if that person makes decisions, well, how do you separate the decision from the crime? So they infiltrated. Yeah, I mean, but yes, they did. And they would pay people money in order to do things. They would provide supplies and materials and everything else for the people to do it. And there's a fair question to say, would these people have gotten as far as FBI to supply this um, stuff? I mean, the the money, or for that matter, the logistics to the stuff. I I think that's a fair question. I mean, how many crimes would be committed if the FBI didn't necessarily get itself involved in trying to— Okay, we're going to give you money, and we're going to give you this, and we need you to give us feedback on what's basically taking place. And it's like, okay, but if you didn't provide those material resources, would the crime have actually proliferated that far?
1: I mean, I don't know. sounding a little like Mary and Barry. A little bit.
0: They, they, don't, they don't know up. who Marion Burry is. Oh, yeah,
1: yeah I forgot. There that bee set me up. Yeah, yeah the DC Burry, mayor. Yeah,
0: he got caught for crack. And apparently, they caught. They busted him um, with a prostitute who apparently was providing crack and the cops come in. Yeah, one video. <laughs> that bee set me up. Yeah. His grandson was broken after. Man, I felt so bad for his grandkid because his grandson was like, oh, he's doing so much better now. And then this. So, yeah. Man, man, you're taking me back. Um, A U.S. jury found 40-year-old Daryl Brooks guilty on six counts of intentional homicide and 70 other criminal charges for his car attack on the Christmas parade in Wakesha, Wisconsin. Last November, Judge Jennifer Dorwell announced on Wednesday. I actually watched this. The jury found Brooks guilty on all 76 criminal charges, including six counts of first degree intentional homicide. Darrow said while reading out the jury's verdict, in addition to the intentional homicide charges, Brooks was charged with crimes, including first degree reckless endangerment of safety, hit and run resulting in death, felony bail, jumping misdemeanor, battery and domestic abuse. This case was wild. This guy was a lunatic on that trial. And he, he... defended himself, right? He defended himself. Yeah. That goofball defended himself. And he shaved because, you know, when I was watching Interrogation, I'm a big fan of Interrogations. So I was watching... I watched his Interrogation <clears throat> even before the trial took Didn't place. he have hair? Yeah. And then be yeah, hair all over the place. And then in trial, shaved. Of course, he's wearing a suit. And so it's like, this doesn't look like the criminal that hit all of these people and killed all of these kids. Like... Yeah, that trial was insane. He kept interrupting the court. He kept taking these actions in order to interrupt. The judge was getting exasperated all through the hearing. And he was doing stuff like, what do he call himself? A, a solid soldier or something where he didn't accept the laws of the land. Yeah, it was uh, wild stuff. Yeah, it, it was out there stuff. The judge was clearly getting frustrated at him. So look, I would tell you this. If you're gonna support yourself, don't pee off the judge. Don't pee off the judge. you will make your life miserable. Um, in international news, President Joe Biden's administration is reportedly mulling scaling back his original Russian oil price cap plan, which was designed to trick off Moscow's revenue from crude exports. Told you so. Told you so. Washington and European Union may have to settle for more loosely enforced cap and higher price range than other otherwise proposed. And with fewer participants on board, according to U.S. media reports, the group of seven G7 nations, the United States, Japan, Germany, Britain, France, Italy, and Canada, and Australia may end up being the only ones agreeing to abide by the measure fully as investors display growing skepticism that the financial players warns of risks um, that the plan entails, sources were cited as saying. I mean, Reuters, if I if I remember correctly, said that basically 80 to 90% could be evaded right off the mm-hmm. bat. And so they were like, okay, if 80 to 90% could be evaded, what is the point of this plan? Why is this plan going to work? And so you basically only get the group of the willing seven nations. How many nations are around the globe? What, 200 or something? Yeah. And you get seven? Seven. Yeah. Good luck with that. The United States has accelerated the deployment of the modernized B-61-12 nuclear bomb at NATO bases in Europe, aiming for the end of 2022 rather than 2023, U.S. online newspaper political reported on Thursday. According to the newspaper, the delivery of the upgraded version of the bomb was originally planned for the spring of 2023. However, according to the diplomatic cable, U.S. officials noted Tornado Allies during the closed meeting in Brussels on October that the deployment is now planned for December of this year. The decision was made in light of the Ukraine crisis and the perceived threats emanating from Russia. Although the Pentagon has refrained from explicitly drawing a link, the newspaper said, "Dude, if you say the decision was made in light of the Ukraine crisis, then that, by definition, is a link. <clears throat> that is a link. What are you talking about? And if this is not brinksmanship, I don't know what is. You're basically taking a nuclear weapon and putting it into Europe to get closer to Russia." Is that what you're doing? Is that what you're doing? I mean, this gets to the whole Armageddon talk again. I mean, all things been equal, why would you do that? you do that if you're looking for a counterbalance to Russian force when you put in your one hundred first the first airborne into Ukrainian territory. Look, I could be wrong on that, that's speculation, but that is not a good sign to see. Chinese leader Xi Jinping has stated that his country is ready to engage with the United States in an effort to help foster global stability, according to the state broadcaster CCTV. Quote, China is willing to work with the United States to respect each other, coexist peacefully, and achieve achieve win-win cooperation to find the right way for China and the United States to get along in a new era, which will not only benefit both countries, but also the world. Unquote. The General Secretary of the Chinese Communist Party said in a letter to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, we don't have pure nations, buddy. We don't have pure nations, especially any peer nations that are friends. The United States and its allies are now trying to destabilize the situation in, on territories bordering Afghanistan. Russian Deputy Foreign Minister Oleg Cyril Molotov. Cyril Molotov thank you. As told the spook You saw the blankness in my eyes. You know, it's like I can see through your glasses well, and it's just I say blank. I it first, so yeah. I know.
1: So yeah. I struggled with it at
0: first. Yeah, just blankness. <laughs> um, quote. Now the United States and its allies continue to play their geopolitical games, carefully contributing to the destabilization of the situation, both in Afghanistan and on the territories bordering it. He said. He added that this is, quote, a demonstration of the not exactly unknown concept of controlled chaos in action, unquote. Look, Syria was controlled chaos, uncontrolled chaos, or controlled chaos. Libya was controlled chaos. I mean, many of the countries that we invade in are uncontrolled chaos. I mean, it's just kind of um, part of the course. It allows you to do things that you can't necessarily do under normal circumstances or wouldn't be allowed. The United States is confident that the UN Security Council will adopt a resolution next month to send a multinational force to Haiti to help stabilize the country amid ongoing crisis, U.S. Assistant Secretary of State for Western Hemisphere Affairs Brian Nichols said on Wednesday, quote, I'm confident that we will have something in early November, both a resolution and leadership for the force, unquote, Nichols said during a press briefing. Nichols noted that the multinational force was requested by the Haitian government. yes, a broken, submissive Haitian government with an unelected leader in a country that is believed that the US basically backs. So we're gonna put in our guy, that our guy is gonna call for support from the US and from the United Nations in order to stabilize the situation. It is a complicated situation in Haiti, and we've had people on to talk about it i got to be honest. There's no solution to it. Um, this day in history. In 1962, Black Saturday, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, an American spy plane is shot down over Cuba, and the Navy drops warning depth charges on Soviet submarines in 1982. That's how close we were. Like, think about that. This is direct engagement, right? Um, Black Saturday, Cuba, an American spy plane is shot down over Cuba, and the Navy drops warning depth charges on Soviet submarines. There was a combat let me go through this first. In 1982, China announces its population has reached 1 billion plus people. In 1986, British government delegates financial markets in a, quote, big bang, unquote, enhancing London's financial status as a financial capital while increasing income inequality. Those are your headlines. You're listening the Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas. and with Malik Abdul. That's how close we were to oblivion. Um, John F. Kennedy has a conversation with Eisenhower. Oh, I. And he's basically trying to understand whether or not they would launch. Basically, if we attack Cuba, where they launch those missiles? I told him no. You'll be fine. I listened to the phone call. He was wrong. Not only were those missiles already there on the Allen; those missiles had been given a pre-order by Khrushchev to be released if they were attacked. So, Manning, they would have launched those missiles if we would have attacked Cuba automatically. There wouldn't have been any thought behind it. The thought it was already came before. That's how close we were. And so, it's like when that plane was shot over Cuba; they're dropping na- um, death charges on Soviet submarines. Mm. They're attacking. Soviet, like that's how close we were. That's why many of these people thought when they left that day, the world is about to come to an end. They were freaked out royally. And it was this kind of negotiation between Kennedy, this kind of back channel negotiation where both sides could be able to save face and everything else to get us out of. Do we honestly believe that Biden is capable of doing that? And my answer is no.
1: And we also, and to think that Biden is so casual, just so casually, carelessly using Armageddon, nuclear Armageddon. You're talking about the end of the world and you're using that political instance That's not a drone strike. No. A nuclear weapon, that's not a drone strike. That's not a drone strike. That's not you attacking Iraq. Yeah. That's not
0: you attacking some random country in Africa or something like that. That's you getting into a nuclear exchange with another nuclear power nation. 90% of the nuclear weapons on the globe are held between Russia and the United States. That's...
1: With something that's designed yeah. to kill on a mass level. Yes. Radiation, I mean... That's its objective. Yeah. So, our president. You guys are listening to
0: Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas. i Malik Abdul. We're going to come back To the one and only Ted Raw. Back shortly,
2: guys. Fault Lines. Fault Lines.
0: Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with Malik Abdul, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what Malik and I are putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like, share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course. You can reach us by phone at 202. 521-1320. Your engagement helps make the show what it is. Don't be shy. We're we'll trying to get to you at either 845 or 945. But I want to get into the conversation. There was, we mentioned this yesterday, but I didn't realize because it didn't quite make sense to me until we were talking about it later in the meeting. And it made it that much more weird and that much more bad. So Joe Biden is giving a speech. Rishi Sunak wins as a prime minister. Joe Biden goes to announce the fact that Rishi Sunak has basically been announced as prime minister of
4: the UK. And he comes out and says this. Let's play the clip. Diwali is a reminder that each of us has the power, has the power to dispel darkness and bring light to the world. It's a choice. And we make that choice every day. It's true in our lives and in the life of this nation, especially in the life of a democracy, whether here in America, or for the families back in India, marking 75 years of independence, and whether it's the United Kingdom or just today, we've got news that Rishi, Rishi, is now the prime minister. As my brother would say, "Go figure." <laughs> and the Conservative Party. Now, when he said Rishi
0: Saluk, Rashi, Rashi Saluk, yeah. Rishi Sunak, for one. Um, nobody prepped the president to get the man's name right of somebody he's going to have to be working with very closely. Um, and on top of that, he said, go figure. He's talking about, I didn't understand what that meant yesterday, but he's yeah. basically saying, this Indian guy got elected in the conservative party. Go figure.
1: Yeah, I, I, I missed <laughs> it yesterday. Because re- reading it and hearing it's different. it is two different things because it doesn't make, like, even reading it, yeah. it doesn't it's make like, sense. It's like, go figure. What does that mean?
5: Yeah.
0: And then you say, Oh, I see. He's at a thing. There's other Indians at the conference. They're plotting. Someone starts laughing when he gets the guy's name wrong. Get the Indian guy. Yeah, It's like, go figure, go figure. Who knew? <laughs> Who knew? Who knew that this Indian guy could get elected in the conservative party? I mean, the conservative party there is not exactly like the conservative party here. Um, but, but look also, how did
1: it, I, I? It's as dismissive as when people talk about black um republicans being yeah. elected or being you know getting different positions or something where did that come from and that's and that is a it it's such a weird um juxtaposition because i know that i've seen people like oh like we're treated as the other right and that's what biden's kind of doing in this oh well you know he's the other well, and look like, at what like look at said. what they did over there i'm surprised well yeah i mean the guy who
0: says, if you don't vote for me, you're not black, wouldn't be surprised about right. other races voting for conservative
1: parties in other countries. He probably just doesn't know. But clearly doesn't understand. And that's what's so concerning to me about it. And like you said, I didn't even put two and two together on yesterday. Yeah, it didn't but make sense. what bothers me most about it is this a, a built-in assumption. Yes. yes. It's, a, it's a built-in assumption coupled with how you, with your years of foreign policy experience and all of this not n- understand the dynamics in the UK because they're probably not surprised over there no. that he was elected. Uh-uh. Well, not probably. They weren't surprised that he was elected. Why are you with all of your, your vast experience? Yeah. Why is this surprising to you that someone like Sunat would win? Yeah. I mean, Conservative Party has women in it, has people of color, all that stuff. I mean, Countries to be, around the world have elected women yes, leaders. Yes. The United States just has. Yes. It's that <laughs> part. I mean, look, th- some of the people
0: that I talked to, especially people of color, were didn't believe that Sunak had a chance in the party because they was like, right. look, well, they only vote. But it's not shocking. I mean, especially at the point where, um, what's her name, flames out. Well, who else was going to be there? Mm-hmm. I mean, at the point where trust fl- fails, the person who was running against trust was Rishi Sunak. So why would it be weird that the person who ran against her the first time around would try to put his head in the ring the second time around. Like, none of that stuff is shocking,
1: per se. It's just part of the—it's dis- like dismissive. It's like a dismissive— a certain level of dismissiveness in the actual statement itself.
0: Yeah. I mean, and I agree with you. Even the vote, if you don't vote for me, not black, even that is dismissive in many respects in regards to um, people not voting Democrat. Or the Joanne Reed thing. Another good example. It's like you, the Hispanics vote for DeSantis because of his proximity to whiteness or their proximity and to whiteness. You
1: Joanne Reed and Jamil Hill, because they were—, they were Responding to someone's commentary about that, but it's insulting, and these type of things happening. I don't want to get into a Kanye discussion, but go ahead. No, go ahead. But but it's okay to make these type of statements, bigoted, prejudice statements, up actually hateful statements about Hispanics. Yes, that's okay. It's like, oh, they have no other reason to vote for
0: um, DeSantis other than their proximity to whiteness. They're light-skinned. So that's why they're voting for it, because they're close to... They
1: want to be white. Yeah. So, so and just to uh, under, um explain what this means, so in this... Uh, it's even an African-American community, by the way. Right, right. This
0: so, idea of light-skinned blacks yes. and, you know, their proximity to the whiteness makes it—all that stuff. That stuff is racial. It's rich. like
1: you want to be—it's the closest thing that they could say to you want to be white right. or you're acting like you're white or right. you want to be accepted by white people. And the assumption is that they own you. Right. Like that the Democratic Party somehow owns the no Hispanic agency. bloc. Yeah. You have no agency. And it's been interesting because I've been hearing the response to the note—to the data— that says that more Hispanics and Blacks are, you know, at yeah, least in this Republican, election right. cycle, are um, voting Republican. Yeah. The response from the left is, well, yes, but most Hispanics and Blacks still vote Democrat. Sure. So what? That's not, that's, yeah, true. that's not even the point. No, the, like you said, they're moving right. in that
0: direction. I mean, and they don't... <sighs> They it's as if they've taken these groups for granted for so long mm-hmm. that these groups are saying we're done. We're fed up. I, my ex's dad. I remember the first time him and I met, he said, oh, I would never vote for a Republican. I said, well, I'm not telling you vote Republican. I'm just saying maybe if you want those things in a political space, you need to be willing to let that Democrat fail. Fast forward two or three years. I'm never voting Democrat again.
1: Like you, like that guy went through the civil I rights use, movement. I use myself as the example. The two-time Obama supporter voted for him by the time they said that Hillary Clinton was going to be the nominee. And after just taking a different position, uh, uh, having a different reality when it comes to race and government during the Obama years. Yeah. And acknowledging I lumped so much on Obama that was unfair. The expectations that I had of not just him as president, but as a black president. Yeah. They
0: were unrealistic.
1: Well, I mean, totally unfair. He
0: went screaming about hope and change. I mean, right. that, that's so oh, emancipatory, was, the I language. I was in it.
1: Yeah. Like, I, I'm i telling you, your boy, I Full was, end. I was. you could not say anything really? about Barack Obama. And I not snap back. Like, I, Whoa. my clap back was serious um, because people were telling me at the time. Well, you know, he ain't go win. Ain't a black man ain't go win. You got to support Hillary. You got any in it, it angered me. And that type of anger over the years, sis, you have to support yeah. the Clintons. Why? A lot of African, a lot of people
0: who are outside the black community don't realize that. They assume that, well, he's black. Of course, you're going to vote for the black guy. But that's not the way African-American no. vote works. Who keep the monsters at bay? Right. It was only until Obama got the point
1: of legitimacy that they were like, oh, he's fair guy. And do you know what that legitimacy was? The Iowa caucus. Once Obama won the Iowa caucus, then people started saying, oh, he, he can win, because he went on. I believe he lost New Hampshire, uh-huh. but then he won South Carolina. Yeah. The, Off the, to the races. Yeah. That was it after that point. Because Clinton looked like she was shocked. I became a believer, but you had many people. The late John Lewis. The late John Lewis came late yeah. in support of Barack Obama because even John Lewis was supporting Hillary Clinton. But I came to um um the the feelings that i had about the clintons and then when it was all but certain that they were going to nominate hillary clinton i said in 2008 when he chose well 2009 when it was announced that she was going to be his secretary of state i said they're planning for 2016. Oh, a Thousand percent and right. And that's exactly what they did. Thousand percent did. right. They cleared the field yeah. for Hillary Clinton in 2016. And I said, oh no. That's I'm why out she of was here. so angry at Sanders. Like, how dare you yeah. jump into
0: this path? Pe- you know I was the person who was supposed to do this. I mean, there was even talk behind the scenes about secret deals being made between Clinton and yep. other women in the Senate, yep. where Elizabeth Warren basically made the deal with her, and she was concerned that Warren was going to try to get more political concessions mm-hmm. out of her mm-hmm. um, or, for that matter, create a run against her. And She wanted to basically um, block off the mm-hmm. left challenge. I mean, all of that stuff was taking place and, and agreed. They wanted to put her on a profile where she would be high profile the entire time. Right. And then when she leaves, she leaves on a high note because secretary of state, you know, all things but equal. It's pretty high rating. I mean, she had high yeah. ratings as secretary of state. Um, but the moment she got in the presidential race, straight down. Um, She was talking about, she spent all of her time talking about Trump. Trump spent his time talking and about decorables. the economy.
1: Yeah. yeah so in two years, so the what you, how you started this was to make, talking about just the Joy and Reeves comments and how they just dismiss, you know, voters. Just, oh, no, well, how could they? Yeah. There's something inherently wrong with them. Yes. Those people. And I, I make the argument often because, you know, it's like, how could you vote Republican? And I said, well, so would 100 percent? Satisfy you? Yeah. Like a hundred
0: percent of blacks voting Democrat would that do it for you?
1: And, and when we get when we go there, then the conversation starts to change because I don't think people understand. Like we're literally talking about ninety percent of one group. Yes. Like, just one group. Not not sixty percent of white people vote for Republican versus mm-hmm. Democrat. No other group does this. Yeah. But to ha- at that number. Yeah. Like ninety percent is huge. And by the way, nothing
0: in return. Like, it's not like they're saying, OK, we're going to pass universal health care to ensure that the lowest end of our economy um, can ensure and get health care without having these massive bills. Right. Um, they're not saying we're going to eliminate student debt. So meaning if Democrats were being Democrats. OK, fair enough. You can make that argument because at the very least, any policy that's going to, let's say, benefit the working class is going to, by definition, help the people at the bottom mm-hmm. more so. Fair enough. You can make that argument. But That's not what they do. I mean, even with the House, the Senate and the presidency, they could have ran the floor on the policies they wanted to do if they got rid of the filibuster. Nobody was willing to do it because I suspect, for one, Manchin doesn't want to lose his power of being able to eliminate the thing by one vote. But also, oh, excellent. Also, you're also the moment that you do that, there's no excuses. Oh, no. There's no excuses. And the because last thing have they want all the power. Yes. The, and the last thing they want is to have no excuses um, where they have to pass that stuff. And the public is looking at them like, dude, well, you have control of the House, the Senate and the presidency. Mm-hmm. Why aren't you doing these things? No, they prefer this filibuster to be in there for that explicit reason of putting the gum in the works so they don't have to pass that stuff. But look, we have Ted Rawl. Ted Rawl is a political and syndicated columnist. Ted, what's going on, man? How are you doing this morning? Uh, I'm
6: pretty
0: good. How are you? We are doing fine. Better that you are with us. Um, I we have a clip that I want to get your take on. This is Joe Biden, and yesterday when we was talking about this, we were t- laughing at the way he called Rishi Sunak. What is that, Rashi Sunuk mm-hmm. or something like that? Rashi Sunuk. Yeah, but there's a worst part of this. And let's play this clip and listen to what he says. And I love Malik's take on this. Malik's take is is so dead on. This idea that it's as if the Democratic Party, or let's say liberal parties, own minority voters. And he applying that
4: from here in the States to the UK. Let's play this clip. Diwali is a reminder that each of us has the power, has the power to dispel darkness and bring light to the world. It's a choice. And we make that choice every day. It's true in our lives and in the life of this nation, especially in the life of a democracy, whether here in America or for the families back in India marking 75 years of independence. And whether it's the United Kingdom or just today, we've got news that Rashid Rashid Sunuk is now the prime minister. As my brother would say, go figure. (laughs) And the conservative party expected to become the prime minister, I think tomorrow when he goes to see the king. Okay, let's stop it from there. Because the last part is important. Because he's like, go figure, conservative party.
1: He explains what he's talking about. Yeah, because he reverses it in a weird way. I didn't, reading that, I didn't hear that conservative, like the party, but he links the two together. Yeah, completely links the two together. He just says it out of order. He's like, go figure. How the
0: (laughs) hell did that Indian guy get in a conservative party? (laughs) Ted, um, Malik made this point about how there's this idea here by Democrats that they own. Minority groups. And you can fold this comment into the Joy and Reed comment where she said it was Hispanics'
1: proximity to whiteness. Jamel Hill was the one who said it. Oh, she was the one who yeah, said it, so it on Jamel the show. Hill, but they were going back and forth with Jamel Hill. Joy Reed made a similar comment. I think maybe something about Nazis or something. Yeah. And then Jamel Hill. <laughs>
6: Nazis.
1: Yeah, it was some ridiculous comment. And then Jamel Hill came back with the proximity to whiteness. Yeah. I mean, it's as if they believe that minorities are owned. By
0: the liberal parties. Astonishing. What's your take on that, Ted? Uh,
6: well, you know, it, it, uh, I, we also have to talk about the Charmaine, Charmaine the God interview that Biden gave, right, during the campaign.
0: If you ain't black. Saying that, yeah, if you don't vote for me, you ain't black.
6: Yeah, yeah. And, and look, uh, you know, this this particular white guy has always been a little confused <laughs> uh, by, you know, by, by, by black conservatives, because I'm always like, well, but I thought, you know, Conservatives were all racist. So why would you want to be so? But, you know, it's true that, you know, that's that's everybody's choice to make. Right. Like what their political, what their politics are and the phenomenon of of people of color who are conservative is well known, (laughs) widely understood, uh, well documented. Shouldn't really come as a surprise to anyone at this point. Uh, You know, I think it's kind of like a very 1980s conversation to have. But you know that's that's how Joe, that's who Joe Biden is, right? We're having a lot. You know, he's a retro dude, um, and uh, you know he likes old cars. He likes everything old, and uh, his his politics are old, and his jokes are old, and you know this is part of that.
0: Yeah, I feel you on that one. It's just look, there's something inherently problematic with a party that believes this own a group owns a group, and part of that comes in line with this idea of taking advantage, right? It's like you know that African Americans vote on this idea of who keeps the monsters at bay. And keeping the monsters at bay, you feel or you get to the point of believing 90 percent support means we can pretty much do anything else because you have nowhere else to go. It is a two-party state and all things be equal to being a two-party state. You either vote for these guys or you vote for us. And until African-Americans get to the point where they're saying, okay, fair enough, we don't have to vote for either of you, then nothing changes. And I don't think it's like the population doesn't quite get that. They're so terrified of losing the small that they have that they're – Not willing to basically take the chance or take the push or the political positioning in order to go for more. What's your take on that part? I mean, this idea that you have nowhere else to go. This is the old Clinton line, if I'm not mistaken.
6: Well, yeah, and you know, in in a sick sense, they kind of are. I mean, you know, one of the discussions uh, you know I've been having with people about like you know the whole the Democratic meme that you know they're protecting democracy because the Republicans are trying to prevent you from allowing uh, you know allowing you to vote for Democrats, it's like, well, you know, it's not really a democracy, right? I mean, because a democracy doesn't just have two parties, right? Uh, you know, it's, it's called a two-party trap for a reason. Uh, you know, I mean, it's kind of hilarious. Like, you know, in Ukraine, you have a, you know, a two-party pseudo-democracy arming, you know, basically a one-party non-democracy. Uh, and, and it's all under the, it's all in the name of, you know, democracy. Right. Um, it's almost like no one knows what democracy is. Uh, you know, democracy is is uh, you know is is not this. Um, yeah, no, I mean, it's it's true, but I don't. I think that you know the, the real fallacy here is the idea that black people in particular are more trapped than anyone else by this two-party system. I mean, everybody is right. I mean, there's just there's only two viable choices, and you know you can if you don't like one, well you've got the other. But you know most of us don't like either, and that's borne out by the fact. That vote, the voter turnout is so pathetic, and in some presidential elections has fallen to or just below fifty percent. That's pretty bad by you know by by the standards of advanced countries. Um, so you know, I mean, like I think Turkey has like ninety-three percent turnout. Yeah, um, some you know, it's, European it's, countries it's have
1: uh, really high. Yeah,
6: and so t- yeah, so so it's it is yeah, so it's it is kind of. But I don't know what there is a, that may, you know about. Being black that makes you more trapped by the two-party system than anyone else. I don't think there is. I think that's just like, a, you know, that's something that the Democrats would like to believe. They think that, you know, because of their LBJ support for the Civil Rights Act and his famous quote about losing the South for a generation, uh, you know, they think they've kind of, Democrats feel like they get black votes for free. And, you know, for a long time they did, but not forever.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, when you give 90% of your vote to one party, yeah, they do. They have a reason to believe <laughs> that the vote is a Ted, I wanted to get your take on. I don't know if you actually saw the interview, the comments that Hillary Clinton made. I think it was yesterday. But I'm going to read I'm going to read the comments to you and then explain to you if you if you're not familiar, then to our audience also what she's referring to. So here's the quote. Um just think, the 2024 presidential election could be decided not by the popular vote or even by the anachronistic electoral college, but by state legislatures, many of them Republican-controlled. What she's referring to is a case that's heading to the Supreme Court. Um, the state of North Carolina, they, um, there's a case there that actually deals with congressional redistricting. It has nothing to do with presidential electors. No one believes that it has anything to do with electors. But Hillary Clinton comes out to now say that the case that deals with redistricting, redistricting maps from the 2020 census, that that case, the Supreme Court, Trump's conservative Supreme Court, will possibly give um, states authority to change their electors. I mean, it's such a mind-boggling thing. It's not surprising to me. And I ask you this question because we've seen in Georgia where the courts down there threw out Stacey Abrams' election, um, her her lawsuit claiming that um, Brian Kemp, uh, voter suppression in the race between she and Brian Kemp. We've seen that. We've seen in other places around the country where um, these election laws or, you know, some were upheld, some were not. But Hillary Clinton and many others have been continuously pushing this disinformation campaign. I mean, that's the only way to describe it, because no one has been able to come forward and said that Brian Kemp or any of them have actually suppressed the vote, that they lost a the vote because of voter suppression. But here you have Hillary Clinton. What do you make of her You know, obviously, I'm thinking this is about 2022, but what do you make of her making these type of comments where she's essentially lying? I mean, there is no, I mean, I read the comments. It has nothing to do with the Electoral College, literally nothing at all. Why do you think she continues to do this? Yeah,
6: I don't think unlike Biden, who says things that are not true because he's confused some of the time. Uh, I don't think that's the case here at all with her. Uh, I think she knows exactly what she's saying. She's counting on the fact that, uh, you know, people conflate these various issues, right? The voter suppression stuff, you know, some of it's real. Some of it's not real. Um, you know, there's, a, you know, like things like, uh, you know, caging votes and, and purging voter rolls. That's true voter suppression. Uh, you know, like trying to, you know, Greg, my, my colleague Greg Palos has documented a lot of that sort of thing. Uh, there's, the, you know, the, all sorts of uh, lawsuits afoot uh, trying to uh, allow states to change their electors uh, if they want to. And by the way, there's kind of a constitutional rationale for allowing that. I mean, you know, when the, you know in, the, in, the 18th, in the 18th century and 19th centuries, it was kind of viewed that, you know, direct democracy wasn't really a thing. And even representative democracy wasn't completely safe. And really, in the end, it was going to come down to landed gentry to decide who should be president and the constitution still sort of shows that stuff. Um, but I think she's saying, I think she's just sort of trying to raise the specter of the Republican boogeyman. Uh, and she's counting on the fact that a lazy media is that's compliant and pro democratic is not going to fact check her. And for the most part, she's right.
1: I I absolutely agree with that, but it's more than just being the boogeyman. What she's, she's talking about stolen elections. I mean, after January 6th, well, I'm sorry, after November of 2020, Hillary Clinton is going around and not just saying that this is, it's different when you're talking about political parties. We know what was happening in Georgia, but there was, I'm sorry, in North Carolina where the courts threw out that um, case in North Carolina because they did say that they were specifically targeting um, black communities. So those things actually, that's true. What Hillary Clinton is talking about is something that's just not true. In the wake of January 6th, she continues in the Democratic Party. They continue to do this. And as you said, they don't get checked like this is you, disinformation, misinformation, lies, whatever you want to call it. She and you acknowledge she knows this is not true. She knows this is not true, but the media won't hold her accountable because they're so wedded to this idea that this is a Republican thing, and they're in the pockets of the Democratic Party. This is why she's not challenged on any of this type of stuff, and it is disinformation. Like, it's just clear disinformation.
6: Yeah, well, it's team politics. You know, when I talk to my Democratic friends uh, or debate them online, they all say, like, well you know they shrug their shoulders and they say well you know uh, it's okay to we have to like turn the other we have to turn a blind eye to this sort of thing because if we don't it only helps the republicans so they're literally so of course that's the road to you know ethical perdition and credibility perdition you're just not you know if you're willing to do anything that it takes to win and say anything that it takes to win then, first of all, they're no different than the Republicans that they're claiming
0: to be so uh, scared of. Ted, I want to get into the debate that took place between um, Hochul and I believe oh, wow. the name is Zeldin. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, Zeldin attacked Hochul on crime over and over again. I mean, even made the point of saying they're less safe, thanks to Kathy Hochul. Um Give me your take on that debate and on the issues that are presenting itself in the mayor and the um, governor race, because they took different positions. I mean, on things from vaccines, on things of Trump or for that matter, even on the issue of crime, like on um, bail, for example, they were taking various dispositions between each other. So there was some level of difference between the two. Give me your take on that debate and give me your take on it from the standpoint of, yeah, give me your take on it from yourself. Like, how do you see it? And the main issues that are basically um, going after or that are being debated in the governor's race.
6: So I think I know Lee Zeldin uh, pretty well because I lived in his district for uh, years, 16 years uh, out in Long Island. And, uh, you know, I I have to say he's, uh, I've always found him to be a repugnant and deplorable uh, politician. Um, So with all that framing, uh, I think he did really well in that debate the other night. Uh, He really outperformed my expectations. He came off as very strong. I was surprised at how uh, feeble she seemed. And, you know, and then the, I, I still can't get over the, the way that uh, New York City and New York State have been become conflated, uh, not only in like the minds of the national media, but here in New York. Um, you know, New York City has always been sort of like, uh, you know, the, the outlying part of New York State. New York State right. politics have never seemed to have much to do with people uh, in New York City. And so it's very strange to see uh, the issue of crime insinuating itself into a state race, especially when you're talking about neither candidate is from the city. Um, uh, She's from, you know, 10 hour drive upstate from Buffalo. Albany's a three hour drive, uh, the state capital. And, you know, Zeldin's from Long Island and he credibly knows something about New York. But, you know, when he drives in to see a show, maybe, Uh, but... Uh, it, it's just weird. Uh, and I think it just it goes to the point that, you know, the crime situation in New York City has become so bad that somehow the people in the rest of the state kind of view it as their own in the same way that, you know, after nine eleven, little towns in the middle of nowhere thought that they needed, uh, you know, old used uh, armored personnel carriers for their local police to keep them safe from the terrorists. I mean, it's just like it's in this entire state's imagination. It's in their, it's in their DNA. Um, this race, if if Zeldin continues to pick pick up momentum at the at the rate that he has been, he could win, and it would just be staggering. Really? Uh, if, I mean, it's well, I mean, and this after three a terms of Cuomo. right? I mean, and I- we haven't had a Republican. This is, a, I mean, this goes to. I talked to uh, quite a few friends about this who are like, well. I hate Hochul, she's too conservative. But what do I do? And we're everybody's kind of like, yeah, but we're going to vote for Hochul because it's about the identity of New York as a liberal state. Like New York can't be allowed to have a Republican uh, governor. The last time we had one was George Pataki. He was a, you know, compar- he was he was not a zealot, he was not a right-winger. He was sort of an old-fashioned country club Republican. And so it's a uh, you know, this is a whole, it's almost like an existential threat. That, you know, New Yorkers are reacting, or I should say liberal New Yorkers, are kind of reacting the way uh, the French did at the prospect of Le Pen becoming president. Right. It's right. kind of like, you know, but on the other hand, uh, you know, Hochel is not, but remember, she wasn't elected, right? She was, a, she was a lieutenant governor. Yeah, she was elected lieutenant governor, but nobody, nobody pays attention to the lieutenant governor. Uh, so she had no real base of support She's had to earn it and she just hasn't done that for any number of reasons. Uh, You know, so except for having a D by her name, there's no sort of, you know, team Hochul. You know, she doesn't, she hasn't, uh, she hasn't managed to do what, you know, Andrew Cuomo did, like with his, making it with his folksy COVID speeches uh, during press conferences. There's just no love for her. There's no dislike. It's just that nobody cares. It's kind of... There's a a neutral feeling
1: about her. Hey Ted, what do you make of this? I well, not an idea. It's actually happening. Um, Whether so, we're talking about um, Zeldin. um, If you're talking about Herschel Walker, maybe even the race between um, the debate between Oz and Fetterman. But we can go over to Ohio with Tim Ryan and J.D. Vance. What do you make of this? what seems to be true that Republicans are at least in the debates. um, Yes, they're definitely closing the gap. We've seen that in um, pretty much everywhere where there's a competitive race. I think that, you know, I I don't expect someone like uh, Kelly, probably um, Arizona. I, I don't expect him to actually win. But what do you make of like, Republicans actually outperforming expectations when it comes to at least their debate performances, because I think I was one of those who said that Herschel Walker will be terrible. Um, but he wasn't actually terrible. And because Warnock was a pastor and he was a senator, so you expected him, you know, he was going to go in and wipe the floor. And I made the comparison. It was a similar thing of what we saw in 2012 between Barack Obama and Mitt Romney where Barack Obama went, he was going in as the champion and everybody expected him to wipe the floor, but many of, I was a Barack Obama supporter at the time, acknowledged that Barack Obama didn't show up in that debate and Mitt Romney ultimately beat him. What do you make of this idea that uh, Republicans are actually, the candidates that, you know, we didn't expect to do well are outperforming expectations?
6: Well, with the exception of Walker, um, these other ones don't. What was really surprising to me was that they had done so poorly during the campaign. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, Vance is a is a published author. He's been on book tour. He was on staff good. At the New York Times. He's a he knows how to talk, right? Dr. Oz. I mean, I don't need to get into why he's a smooth, polished, right? Uh, you know, television personality. Uh, you know, it, why he wasn't doing better earlier on is the true mystery there. And frankly you know, all you had to do in this debate is not have a stroke. And he was going to win this debate. Um, you know, uh, it, was, it was, I think, you know, this is, I think people, it, maybe these candidates and their staff are just more focused now, mm. or maybe because the races are, are tightening, uh, the debates, which don't always have an effect, are viewed as important. I mean, you could really see it. I just drove across Pennsylvania a couple of days ago. And, you know, you could really see how engaged Pennsylvanians are here. And basically, I think this was Fetterman's race to lose. Uh, And then, you know, they wanted, Pennsylvanians wanted to check him out and see, you know, hey, uh, has he recovered? Uh, Can he do the job? I think it really comes down to something as simple as that. And if the answer was yes, then he was going to win. I don't think the answer was yes. Uh, so, uh, the, so I think, you know, he's, he's in trouble.
1: Do you think that Um, Oz would have, um, I, and gee, I can't remember his name. It was, uh, um, he and Oz were going head to head. They ended up, I think, doing a recount. Oh, gee, the other Republican who was running during the race, not Kathy um, Barnett. It was the other gentleman. I can't think of his name. He was the other Republican that Oz ultimately beat. Donald Trump was the one who supported Oz. But um, I'm sure you remember who I'm talking about. His name just escapes me. He mentioned his name a few times,
0: like yesterday or something like that. Uh, Yeah,
1: I can't remember his name. And I guess since I can't remember his name, maybe it doesn't make my point because I was going to ask you, do do you think that he would have been a better um, fit than Oz, even though they, I think Oz beat him by point like four percentage points or something.
6: Well, as you imply, uh, Malik, I think I think that you know the person who wins the primary is the best fit by definition, uh, to run. Um, uh, but you know, the, the points taken, I, I he might have been a better fit for, for Pennsylvania. I mean, Setterman's kind of a perfect fit for, for Pennsylvania, you know, minus the stroke. Um, and you know, I think he would have won uh, handily without that.
1: That's a very good point because people don't realize that the seat that they're actually competing for is already a Republican seat. But Pennsylvania has a history of that seat being Arlen. Arlen Spector had this seat. Arlen Spector was a Republican. He turned independent. He ended up, I think, retiring as a Democrat, maybe. Um, but Arlen Specter had that seat. So it it's not like that particular seat or in Pennsylvania itself, they don't have a history of electing, um, you know, Democrats. It's not a red, red state. They've elected both Democrats and Republicans to the Senate.
6: No question about it. I mean, it's definitely a classic swing state. It's just and, you know, I mean, to me, the real comeback story is Vance. I mean, oh, wow. Vance, he, he burns through all of his money. He, uh, he ran a crap campaign. He was a carpetbagger, uh, you know, really, objectively. I mean, his Ohio links are are more tenuous than mine. And, you know, I grew up, I, I lived there till I was 18. Um, he, but but still, uh, and, you know, and there's something kind of unpleasant about him on television, uh, you know, and, and yet here he is, um, you know, really, I mean, I think poised to win, and that is going to be dramatic. It's going to really reflect, the shift of Ohio from a swing state to a red state. Uh, and what's happening in the gubernatorial race in Ohio is even in a way more shocking. Um, the incumbent uh, governor is good enough and there's no major complaints, but the Democrat Nan Whalen, uh, mayor from, of my hometown of Dayton, uh, is really truly a, a person to watch with incredible charisma. And really, you know, it's almost like she's perfect on paper and in and in practice, and she's getting, you know, she's getting. They're wiping the floor is being wiped with her. Fifty-five, thirty-seven. I saw in the last poll. Oh, jeez. Um, so so it's it, it, that's kind of, you know, I think more a reflection of of party politics uh, in in the state. Ohioans are still you know, the Ohioans that gave Trump the presidency are still really angry about deindustrialization, uh, NAFTA, WTO. Uh, And feel, you know, the the opioid crisis, which Dayton was for many years ground zero for, uh, you know, I mean, I think it is a, uh, you know, it's a a stunning turn of events. I mean, I I think at this point, you know, just on the broader scale, there's I I don't see any world in which Democrats continue to control the Senate. I would not have said that a month ago.
1: Yeah, it
0: seems like they were trying to make inroads. And at this point, that seems to be over with. I don't necessarily see it. Um, and I, I would suspect that part of the reason, and this I have to get your take on it because I don't think we've had you on since it happened. Well, you got 30 progressive Democrats that come out basically. And they say right here, quote, proactive diplomatic push redoubling efforts to seek a realistic framework for a ceasefire, unquote. They said the risk of nuclear weapons being used is, is, has been estimated to be higher now than any time since the height of the Cold War. Um, quote, for this reason, we urge you, to pair the military and economic support for the United States has provided for Ukraine with proactive diplomatic push, redoubling efforts to seek a realistic framework for a ceasefire. Very tepid, right? Not, It's not, you know, we need you to, you know, force um, Zelensky to accept some peace. It's not that. It's very tepid. We beseech you, sir, to go out and try to get some kind of peace that will be a forceful peace. With criticism, within 24 hours, give or take an hour or a few minutes, they re- withdraw the letter. And not just withdraw the letter. They make this point about saying they don't want to look like Republicans and they don't want to give any kind of idea that they are aligning themselves with Republicans. And this is their reason for basically going, Yeah, the midterms. <laughs> so right here. But see, I think the reason that they came out for it was midterms. The reason they pulled back, I think, is because they're party. I think it's that. Yeah, so right here, good point. The, the Congressional Progressive Caucus hereby withdraws its recent letter to the White House regarding Ukraine. The letter was drafted several months ago, but unfortunately was released by our staff without vetting. They're, no, they're blaming the They're staff. blaming their staff. They're blaming their so staff. So this was just sitting in draft. They said this was sitting in draft for months. They were thinking about this wow. for months. Despite the fact that Biden just mentioned the Armageddon thing, what, like a few months ago or like a week or so, a few weeks ago? So if this the has been sitting for months, the bus. yes, wow. throw them under the bus completely. And it says, meaning it doesn't make sense, right? I mean, uh, the, the dirty bomb stuff, the nuclear bomb stuff was maybe like a month ago at the most. And they're saying this was months sitting on the draft table. Okay, the chair of the caucus, I accept responsibility for this. No, you don't. You just threw your stab under the bus Um, right here. Because of the timing, our message is being conflated by some as being equivalent to the statement made by Republican leader McCarthy threatening to end aid to Ukraine. If Republicans take over, that's not necessarily what he threatened. But whatever. You just say you won't get a blank check. The proximity of these statements created an unfortunate appearance that Democrats who have strongly and unanimously supported and voted for every Package of military, strategic, and economic assistance for Ukrainian people are somehow aligned with Republicans who seek to pull the plug on America's support for Zelensky and Ukrainian forces. Nothing can be further from the truth. Everywhere ends with diplomacy, and this one will after Ukrainian victory. Like, there's so much BS in the statement. How do you figure Ukraine is going to get that victory? That's the first question. Um, two, how are you throwing your staff under the bus and then turn around saying, but I accept responsibility despite the fact that in the last sentence I threw the staff completely under the bus. And all things but equal, these guys were basically withdrew within one day. It's like they, they had a bone in them that said, OK, maybe we shouldn't keep supporting this war, especially if the president's screaming Armageddon within one day of criticism.
1: Turn tail. I can assure you that that chief of staff did not send that, did not cosign that by accident. The of chief course. of staff has lie. to sign off on it. Yes. So it went out because it was supposed to oh, go out. I don't believe this nonsense at all. Ted, what's your take on this? Just weak.
6: Uh, yeah. Well, you know, uh, some of us have been saying for a long time, uh, <laughs> you guys included, that, you know, the squad is kind of like a, a BS project, right? Yeah. I mean, it's like, oh, we can take over the, you know, we can influence and maybe take over the Democratic Party from within. Right. Well, that, you know, that doesn't work, can't work, won't work, isn't working. And this proves it. Uh, it's just another example. Uh, you know, I mean, if I am AOC this morning, I'm waking up feeling completely impotent, defanged, humiliated. Just this morning? I've, I've been, just this morning? two years particularly this morning, I'm <laughs> feeling I, I've been made a fool of. And, you know, by the way, you know, she she could. She could resign. You know what I mean? She could quit the Democratic Party. Oh, you mean in protest? Yeah, she could resign and then like really like make a huge name for herself on the national scene, like in a way bigger than Tulsi did when she did that. I don't know. It's like there's there are times when you know when you're forced to do something that, that goes against your fundamental values. I mean, you know, you gotta leave. I mean, where where does she go from here? I mean, it's who will ever take her seriously or any of them? Um, yeah, it's it, it's really sad. Um, you know, they sh- they could have said no. They could have just, you know, when Nancy Pelosi told them, which is certainly what happened, <laughs> to remember. withdraw to withdraw that that statement. You make it by Could have look been bad. like, with all due respect, Madam Speaker, uh, we're not going to do that. Yeah, and I mean, if you don't like it, you can take away our, you know, our committee memberships, whatever you want to do. But we we're, we're, we just can't do that. You know, we're gonna we're gonna look like idiots.
0: Yeah, force um, her to do so, it. Yeah, force Pelosi, force Mama Bear to do it. I mean, because you're right, these guys, I suspect that they're getting pressure from below, like the guy who basically went after AOC um, with the anti-war thing. I suspect that guy is not alone going after them. And yet it's this question become, you know, inflation, economics and are people tying it to Ukraine? And if so, well, you've just wed yourself further to it with this letter, basically saying we agree with everything the president has done on the issue of Ukraine. Good luck with running on that. um. Ted, thank you, man. Ted Rawl is political cartoonist and syndicated columnist. You can follow Ted on Twitter at Ted Rawl and read his cartoon and articles at rawl.com. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas. And I'm Malik Abdul. Back for the last hour.
2: Fault Lines. Fault Lines.
0: Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And I'm joined with Malik Abdul. You guys are listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. Yeah, the politics, I mean, what, the midterms are what, November 8th, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. And so all of those seats are basically going to be up for grabs. And, yeah, man, I think the Democrats are going to get slaughtered. I could yeah. be wrong, but it, it, when you're looking at polls that says America American public cares about inflation, economics, for obvious reasons, right? Those two things are interrelated to one another. And then you get the Democrats and their main thing is January 6th and women's rights.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's, oh, that's a recipe for disaster. And this is across race. This isn't a like black people care about this right. versus white. No. Everybody. Everybody cares about their living Top situation. three concerns. Yeah. Crime, inflation, um,
0: and economy. No, no. It was economics, um, I- inflation, and immigration. Immigration. And Republicans in all three. All three. Yeah. yeah. That looks bad.
1: Let's get to some domestic news. The United States is in a decisive decade. Biden said, according to a White House pool report, Biden thinks that the country will continue to lead on the world stage with diplomacy and, quoting, the finest fighting force in the history of the world. The United States will lead on issues including climate change and countering Russia in Ukraine. This is what Biden was talking about in the press pool, countering Russia in Ukraine. The U.S. will lead on countering Russia in Ukraine. Wow. Priorities Washington has a rep- responsibility to manage the increasing competition with Beijing and does not seek a conflict, Biden also added. Former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows was ordered to travel to Atlanta, Georgia, and testify in front of a special grand jury looking into election interference in the state during the 2020 presidential election. The order came down on Wednesday, and Meadows' lawyer, James Bannister, said they plan to appeal the decision. Bannister is using a legal strategy that has worked for other witnesses from Texas who were ordered to appear in front of the special grand jury. They argued that the Georgia special grand jury is not a legitimate criminal jury because it lacks indictment authority and therefore cannot compel witnesses from other states to appear. Bannister is making the same argument for Meadows in South Carolina. The U.S. Attorney's Office in Manhattan launched a federal criminal investigation into Senator Robert Menendez for matters that at present remain unclear. Simo4 reported on Wednesday, the scope of the investigation into Menendez is unknown, but at least one subpoena has been sent in the case, citing, this report said citing, people familiar with the matter the senator the democratic senator from new jersey and his office staff are available to provide official assistance as requested menendez's advisor michael solomon has was quoted as saying a michigan state court convicted three men on wednesday of aiding a 2020 plot to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer in retaliation for COVID-19 pandemic mitigation policies put in place by her government. The Detroit area court found Paul Bellar, Joseph Morrison, and Pete Musico guilty of providing material support for a terrorist act as well as gang membership and possession of a weapon while committing a felony, all three felony crimes that could land them in prison for 20 years. The three members of a far-right militia group, the Wolverine Watchmen, who spoke openly of their hatred for government officials, including both elected officials like Whitmer, as well as police officers. It is worth noting that the defense is arguing that this was entrapment, that the government entrapped him. They sent FBI agents in to infiltrate their little group. The The government, on the other hand, is saying that they were already planning this before although they acknowledge they sent their people to infiltrate them. But, doesn't matter because a Michigan State court convicted three and they're gonna be in jail for sure. In more news, domestic news, a U.S. jury found 40-year-old Daryl Brooks guilty on six counts of intentional homicide and 70 other criminal charges for his car attack on a Christmas parade in. Waukesha, I believe I read in the mum- rumble room correctly, I think the name, was it Waukesha? You're gonna tell me if I said it right. Wisconsin, this is in Wisconsin, and it happened last November, Judge Jennifer Doro announced on Wednesday. The jury found Brooks guilty on all 76 criminal charges, including six counts of first degree intentional homicide, Doro said while reading out the jury's verdict. In addition to the intentional homicide charges, Brooks was charged with crimes including first-degree reckless endangerment of safety, hit-and-run resulting in death, felony bell-jumping misdemeanor battery, and domestic abuse. In international news, President Joe Biden's administration is reportedly mulling scaling back its original Russian oil price cap plan, which was designed to choke off Moscow's revenues from crude exports it was designed to do it but russia's doing quite fine on the economic front how about that those sanctions not seeming to work there it's not crippling the russian economy as many people assumed that it would washington and the european union the eu may have to settle for a more loosely enforced cap in a higher price range than originally proposed and with fewer participants on board, according to U.S. media supports. And not just fewer participants on board, the group of seven nations, the G7 nations, which is comprised of the United States, Japan, Germany, Britain, France, Italy, and Canada and Australia may end up being the only ones agreeing to abide by the measure fully as investors display growing skepticism and financial market players warn of the risks the plan entails. Sources closest to the matter were cited as saying. The United States has accelerated the, deploy- the deployment of a modernized b 6112 nuclear bomb at NATO bases in Europe, aiming for the end of 2022 rather than 2023, Political reported on Thursday. According to the newspaper, the delivery of the upgraded version of the bomb was originally planned for the spring of 2023. However, according to a diplomatic cable, U.S. official told NATO allies during a closed meeting in Brussels in October that the deployment is now planned for December of this year. They're moving the date up, folks. The decision was made in light of the UK crisis and perceived threats emanating from Russia, although the Pentagon has refrained from explicitly drawing any links. This is according to Politico. China's leader, Xi Jinping, has stated that his country is ready to engage with the United States in an effort to help foster global stability, according to state broadcaster CCTV. Quoting, China is willing to work with the United States to respect each other, coexist peacefully and achieve win-win cooperation and find the right way for china and the u.s to get along in the era which will not only benefit both countries but also the world the general secretary of the chinese communist party said in a letter to the national committee on u.s china relations the united states and its allies are now trying to destabilize the situation on territories bordering afghanistan Russian Deputy Foreign Minister Oleg Siramolotov has told Sputnik, quoting, Now the United States and its allies continue to play their geopolitical games, carefully contributing to the destabilization of the situation, both in Afghanistan and on the territories bordering. Molotov said, also added, adding, that this demonstration this is a demonstration of the not exactly unknown concept of controlled chaos in action. And more international news, the United States is confident that the UN Security Council will adopt a resolution next month to send a multinational force to Haiti to help stabilize the country amid the ongoing crisis. US Assistant Secretary of State for Western Hemisphere Affairs Brian Nichols said on Wednesday quoting, I'm confident that we will have something in early mm, November, both a resolution and leadership for the force. Nichols said this during a press briefing, also adding that the multinational force was requested by the Haitian government. On this day in history, in 1962, Black Saturday during the Cuban Missile Crisis, which an American spy plane is shot down over Cuba, and the Navy drops warning depth charges on Soviet Marines. In 1982, China announces its population has reached one billion plus people. In 1986, British go- British government deregulates financial markets in a big bang, enhancing London's status as a financial capital, while increasing income inequality. These are your headlines for today, Thursday, October 27th. You are listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. All right. So
0: we have Elijah with us. Um, He's already joined us. So let's go to Elijah. You can go to him early. Yeah. So you guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm with Malik Abdul. We'll be back in a moment.
2: Fault Lines. Minds.
0: Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with Malik Abdul, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM at 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what Malik and I are putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like, share the audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and a course. You can reach us by phone at 202 521-1320. Your engagement helps make the show what it is. Don't be shy. We'll be taking your calls at 945. But I want to bring in our guests. We have the one and only Elijah Magier. He's a veteran war correspondent with 35 years of experience in Iran, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Libya, Sudan, Afghanistan, and Yugoslavia. Elijah, welcome back, my man. How are you doing this morning? Hello, my friend. I'm fine. Thank you. How are you? I am great. Better that you are joining us. And there is a fascinating article that came out of the New York Times that I wanted to talk to you about. So, right here, US officials had a secret oil deal with the Saudis, or so they thought. And basically, to give a summary of the article, it basically says that Joe Biden had a deal with Saudi Arabia that they would, let's say, surge oil all the way out into December. That's not a magical number, midterms on in November. So he basically wants the oil to basically show the markets that, okay, Saudi Arabia is on board with us and that all things being equal, they're not going to let it spiral out of control. That was what he wanted to signal. Um, This was classified, meaning there were various Democrats who basically were in on this other Democratic lawmakers. And at the end of the day, instead of surging oil production, they cut it and not just cut it by a few hundred thousand barrels, they cut it by two million barrels a day, which left Biden apoplectic, felt used. And they even make the point in the article right here. It said, what happened over the last half year is a story of handshake agreements, wishful thinking, missed signals, and finger pointing over broken promises. <laughs> what is your take on this? I'm fascinated by this. this. Saudi Arabia is supposed to be an ally, every bit as much as Turkey. Turkey and Saudi Arabia are both trying to get into BRICS right now. And it seems that they are basically trying to hedge their bets in regards to this kind of hegemonic control of the West. How do you see this what's your take
7: well here are very points to highlight Uh, first of all the 23 opec plus members decision to reduce the energy production by two million barrels per day uh, it is really the decision of saudi arabia because russia was hoping to reduce it by one million and we have learned that the saudis pushed for two million now That will start being effective from the beginning of the next month of November. It is true that Saudi Arabia has always been supportive of the U.S. decision. The last two decisions in 2018 and 2020, I think, in support of the request from President Donald Trump, uh, Mohammed bin Salman responded to the U.S. request to lower the production once and to increase the production another time. So that means the U.S. and Saudi Arabia, they have a strategic bond and relationship when the Saudis accept the defense of the U.S. that was stipulated in the 80s with the King uh, Saud. And uh, in exchange, Saudi Arabia will uh, support the U.S. uh, by all means. And this is what the Saudis have been doing, investing billions of dollars in all the U.S. secret wars and or overt wars, uh, ending by uh, the Syrian war with the support of the Takfiri and before that the support of the um, Mujahideen in Afghanistan that became at that time freedom fighters. And Saudi said, we have supported them to the request of the uh, Americans. So what happened? What happened is that President Biden, before his presidency, said that Saudi Arabia is a pariah and state, and I'm not going to go to Saudi Arabia. I don't recognize Prince uh, um, Mohammed bin bin Salman, and I will certainly not shake hands, which is something that he did uh, later on, just to go and beg for more oil, because of his war against Russia that he was planning for, since he was vice president uh, uh, under Barack Obama. So because of that, he went to Saudi Arabia and we saw the relationship was not very good. Why? Because the Americans also did not respect the end of the deal by pulling out the Patriot missile and telling the Saudis that we are not going to defend you, we're not going to abide by the deal that has been stipulated in the 80s with the first Saudi king. So why would Saudi accommodate Joe Biden before his midterm election and give him a tip to win over the Republicans when the Republicans at the time during uh, Donald Trump uh, were in harmony with the Saudis and defending the Saudis' interest and uh, breaking the deal with Iran that the Saudis were not happy about. So we're really supporting all the Saudis requests and the Saudis were doing exactly the same with the Americans. Now here come a president who thinks that he can do what he wants, decide what he wants, call Saudi Arabia, pariah state, and then go and say, well, actually reducing the two million barrels per day, uh, it is it falls into your interest and the interest of all the oil production countries, all the 23 OPEC plus members. but." Uh, actually it doesn't uh, fits with our policy because we need more oil in the market because we want to the de- to give up on the uh, on the russian oil and nobody can fill up the gap but you so why on us president joe biden believes his demand or his orders are going to be fulfilled by the saudis When uh, he owes nothing to the Saudis, and the Saudis owe nothing to him, when he called them a pariah state, and he doesn't want to support what they feel comfortable about, and uh, then they find in Russia a partner or a a fair partner that is not dictating its policy, that is asking nothing from the Saudis, and Saudi actually saying, well, according to our interest, we have to cut down two million, not one million. And then Biden finds himself for the first time since 1984 uh, using so much of the oil reserves because – and getting to a dangerous state, by the way. That's right. Because what he's going to – how he's going to buy the oil later and for how much. Now, the barrel of oil today is $94 thanks to the uh, uh, hesitant China because of covid but uh, if we wait a couple of months or just not next month when the Europeans are going to say, well, we have to implement the action that we have decided and to stop buying oil from Russia, they're going to be in deep.
0: I agree with your sentiment. Put it that way. I agree with your sentiment. Um, now, and there's one other element to this that we should hit too. OPEC, OPEC plus is looking out for their own interests. I mean, the Biden administration is trying to use these politics of saying, oh, they're working with the Russians, missing the point that OPEC as a cartel finds it their responsibility to set the price of oil and gas. Meaning from their standpoint, this is our job and we're not necessarily going to be okay with the U.S. using a sanction mechanism in order to try to replace us just because it got itself into a crisis point that it has no way out of. Talk about that for a moment. I mean. The, the cartel is, what, 20-something nations. So it's not just Saudi Arabia by itself, even though Saudi Arabia is probably has outside influence. But all things but equal, this has a lot to do also, not just with the personal feelings between these guys, but also as a business decision. I mean, look, I agree with you that he put a knife in Joe Biden on that. <laughs> like, definitely put a knife on Joe Biden. It's embarrassing. I mean, even in the article, it mentions how embarrassing it is for Joe Biden. So I'm going to make him a pariah and then come back and you get— Shafted by the 2 million on barrels. But this has a lot to do also, though, with this idea that the U, this U.S. sanction mechanism is considered um, a, a persona non grata in regards to the way that OPEC considers their responsibility to set the price of oil or gas.
7: So, look, if we go back to just two years ago, 2020, when OPEC Plus cut its oil production by 10 million barrels per day, They were uh, responding to the market because uh, the world was hit by the COVID-19 pandemic and they acted according to the need of the market. And the price of oil normally is in harmony with the demand uh, of the market. If there is a high demand, then there is uh, a high production to keep a, a, a consistent price of oil that can fluctuate between one and two and three extra dollars a barrel, no more. But now when you start a war and you create insecurity in the world, there is insecurity. Today, everywhere here in Europe, there is insecurity. Uh, People are thinking, do we keep cash? Do we go and buy assets? What kind of asset we can buy to protect our the value of our money, if we buy housing, and then we see in the uk the prices had gone down between thirty to forty percent, so there is a great panic in the market today and insecurity because of the war in Ukraine and because the United States had decided to start this war against Russia and China later on you know f- and sending a message to china speak- so basically what 's happening today is there is a a market that is really scared. And it's not knowing in which direction to go. Now, if you continue with this war, and you say, I'm going to supply Ukraine with further weapons, and I'm going like the European uh, Union the other day decided to supply Ukraine with $18 billion extra, and the United States, they both are going to reach to the level of 100 billion and most money is going to weapons, we understand that the Americans don't want to stop this war. But luckily then we understand from President Biden that the Republicans may not continue supporting this war, which means Biden has two years in front of him to continue this war and in his thinking win it. So we have two years of a scared market A panic in the market where the price of oil and gas is going always to play and be disbalanced because nobody knows what's going to happen tomorrow. What is the next step and how the war in Ukraine is going to escalate?
0: So this just came out. Well, wait a minute, 27. Yeah, 27. So it says the European bank raised interest rates by 75 basis points and signal further tightening ahead of its fight um, to deal with record inflation and its rapidly eroding consumer spending power across the region. Well, yeah, the pound is gone through the floor and the euro also. Quote, the interest rate on the main refinancing operations and the interest rate on the marginal lending facility and the deposit facility would increase um, to 2%, 2.25%. And 1.5 percent, respectively, the ECB said in a statement on Thursday. And I read this part. The central bank has been widely expected to deliver another jumbo rate hike as its marches ahead on fast fastness tightening cycle on record. The ECB raised rates by a total of two percent over the last three meetings to take them to the highest level since 2009. What this means, though, all things being equal, if it's the same in the United States, is that they're trying to constrain the money supply, which is going to adversely affect jobs here in the U.S. They're expecting two point, I think it was eight million jobs to basically be shed off as the Fed increases rates. I mean, I would imagine they're going to think something similar there. Has there been any conversation or talk about job losses um, within the context of the recession itself?
7: Well, it's not going to happen only in the uh, U.S. I can tell you the other day here in Brussels, uh, there was a real warning. Uh, hitting us, saying that we may—I mean, people may lose uh, over 35 million jobs in the EU, in the EU because of the uh, the consequences of the war in Ukraine. And that was this this warning is really serious. And
0: wait, wait, Elijah, real quick—did you say 35 million?
7: 35 million, yes, wow. it's 35 million jobs, and. All that is because now Italy is borrowing, borrowing, borrowing uh, 200 million, no, 150 billion dollars. Uh, Germany is borrowing 200 billion uh, euros, and France uh, 64 uh, billion. All of that is to support the uh, the crisis and the increase of prices. Uh, And the increase of energy in the UK, people are stealing electricity, others refusing to pay their bills. All of that, we're talking about a serious crisis that is going to hit us. And why is that going to hit us? Because there is a mismanagement in the uh, European uh, continent about how we're going to deal with the war in Ukraine and for how long we're going to continue imposing sanctions on Russia. That is having a boomerang effect on us. This is why two days ago, President Emmanuel Macron said the United, listen to that carefully. He said, the United States of America and Russia need to talk to each other about how to stop the war in Ukraine. So he is for the first time stating the reality It is not Russia and Ukraine. It is the United States and Ukraine. So that is the reality that we are facing. And uh, this reality is something that for the time being, the uh, leaders are still resisting to confront the Americans and say, we can't continue with supporting your policy. It's just not possible.
0: I'm curious, how are these governments expected to pay for this? I mean, all things being equal, can correct me if I'm wrong, the European Union has price caps on how much money they can spend on their own economies. Um, and if that's true, because I remember back in the Yellow Vest movement, um, you had a situation where I believe it was Emmanuel Macron ends up spending more money, and he gets permission to spend more money because they realized how bad um, things were on the ground. And he needed to spend that money in order to get those Yellow Vest protesters off the street. When Italy tried to do it, Brussels basically wrapped them on the knuckles, saying you can't spend that much money on your local populations in order to I think it was a five-star movement that came into office at the time. Um, If that's true then, I would imagine it has to be true now. Has some kind of regulation come into play where they allow these governments to spend more money like that? Germany is spending $200 billion. And to the consternation, apparently, other European states. How are they expected to cover this? I mean, especially with the euro dropping, it makes their budgets that much more fraught.
7: Well, the problem in our system is that people delegate power to the government. And it's the government who decides what is the best for the population. That is the democratic system we have here and in Europe. So we are giving the total power to the government and to the president, depending on which country in Europe uh, you live. Uh, If it is a prime minister or it is a president like in France. Um, So for that, you have decisions that are taken by the leaders But then you have the street where people can go to the street like it is planned tomorrow in France, uh, all over France. There are manifestations that are planned because of the cost of life. And when we say the cost of life, it means we're saying that we are not happy with the decision of our leaders. And then we have the Ursula von der Leyen that counting the washing machine and the refrigerators to make sure that they're not reaching Russia because they're using the semiconduct in their missile and their airplane, which is something really ridiculous. So we have, complete, we have leaders that are completely cut out from the reality, or at least they are honest, like uh, Joseph Borrell who's saying we live in a garden and the rest of the world is rubbish uh, because it's a jungle. So this colonialism mentality that we thought, I mean, and I'm I'm thinking here in terms of how the European leaders are thinking, that we are going to win the war and we want our share. And we're not going to allow uh, the uh, Russian to win and then the U.S. to take everything. Now, I was on my desk in 1991 when the Americans destroyed Kuwait to rebuild it again, and 98% of all the the, the contracts went to American contractors and 2% for the rest of the world. So the Europeans want to have a share to uh, rebuild uh, Ukraine and Russia. When Russia is going to be divided and uh, President Putin is going to be uh, dismissed and he will face a coup d'etat. So all this imagination in their head that this is how, going to, uh, how the situation is going to go, that we, was uh, revealed to us by, Prime, by a NATO member, an EU member that is uh, Hungarian, Prime Minister Viktor Orban. Who said this is what the Americans told us, and it is not true. So the Europeans think that they have taken the right decision. They confront you with a very stupid narrative. Oh, if you if you are against us, go and live in Russia. Well, I don't want to live in Russia because I'm not Russian and I haven't. I wasn't born in Russia. I want to live in Europe, and I want to speak my mind. that this is my freedom. Allow me to uh, say whatever I want. But at the end of the day. Their narrative is shrinking. Their logic is no longer applicable. EU nation borrowed 1.7 trillion euros for the pandemic and to confront the um, uh, energy and inflation crisis. So where are we going from there? We're going really to a uh, collapse of the economy in Europe.
0: Wow. It's that stark. I mean, like, I mean, because like you said, all things been equal. They've been borrowing a ton of money to cover this stuff. And my thing was, OK, if there are rules around borrowing that money, how are they basically getting around those rules? There's also seemed to be consternation between Emmanuel Macron. In fact, before I get to Macron and Schultz, because there seemed to be some kind of beefing between those two. I want to get your take on the U.S. speeds up plans to store upgraded nukes in Europe. I read that in my <laughs> – instead of bringing these nukes into Europe in 2023, they're talking about moving this up until 2022. Um, In December, and they're trying to say there's no direct link between this and Russia, even though this is about the Ukraine issue, which is I meaning is a direct link between this and Russia. And this is after Joe Biden's Armageddon talk. This is after the dr- dirty bomb speculation by Moscow, basically saying they had intel that Ukraine was trying to create a dirty bomb um, pretext in order to get either NATO to get involved into that particular conflict or for that matter, just as a dirty bomb itself, um, as a weapon of terror. Give me your take on this. I mean, it clearly these things are related to one another. But are they related to one another in a way where the U.S. is trying to set up a pretext in order to which they can invade Ukraine? Meaning by Joe Biden saying, oh, there's Armageddon, there's Armageddon, and Putin is talking about nooks. All of this talk was coming out of the United States. Putin basically made a response to saying in relation or in response to what the U.S. was saying um, about saying, look, we will defend our country, period. And if you guys are attacking us, we will use whatever's on the table to do so. That's exactly the same statement that the United States makes about itself and pretty much any nuclear power makes about itself. Is it is I mean, am I wrong into thinking that maybe Ukraine was or is thinking about the dirty bomb thing with the belief that if they launch one, those countries are so wet to Ukraine that they would continue to be wet to Ukraine. And just like with the Zaporozhia power plant or Gazprom or the Azov battalion members in Russian prison camp. That Russia apparently bombed themselves. Like, meaning it's the pretext, it's the reason that the U.S. has taken these actions, putting the 101st Airborne, the screaming eagles in Romania. All of this stuff is based around this idea that at some point, the Ukrainian government was going to collapse or on the brink of collapse. We will invade certain regions of it. And all things being equal, we would have those nuclear bombs that are nearby as a threat mechanism on top of the 101st Airborne being in the country itself. What is your take on this? Am I thinking too much about this? Or is Give me your framing of this. You are far more experienced in this than I am.
7: Okay, so we have to uh, go to the root of this, uh, what's happening now, and the talk about the dirty bomb or the nuclear bomb. Um, first of all, please forgive my language. It's not my terminology. It's a, the U.S. Assistant Secretary of State's um, terminology that Victoria Nuland in 2014, when she, she said, F- the EU. And when she said that, uh, she's saying to the U.S. ambassador that we decide who we appoint in Ukraine and who is going to be what uh, and who's going to lead what in the country. So based on that, we understand we don't need to go to 2004 attempt to take Ukraine and that the attempt has failed. We don't want to go to 2014, the Maidan, um, color revolution that is an American revolution in every country that doesn't abide by the American rules. We want to uh, start from there and explain that Ukraine is under the U.S. control. And the Ukrainians are extremely happy with that because they think uh, this is the only gate uh, to go to uh, the West and to go to the EU, be a member of EU uh, nations and leave uh, Russia permanently. And I can tell you that because I have a Ukrainian refugee in my house and she's a doctor and she explained to me that this is their only hope. And I know that from other Ukrainians, but that's a confirmation. So by understanding that, the, we need we go to, is the U.S. going to give up on Ukraine? The answer is no. The U.S. is not going to give up on Ukraine because Joe Biden told us when he was directing his word to the Democrats, uh, he's saying that this is not about Ukraine. It is about Eastern Europe. It is about NATO, which means it is the control of the U.S. over Eastern Europe, which is perfectly right, and it is the control of the U.S. over NATO and bringing NATO together when in 2018, President Emmanuel Macron said that NATO is a brain dead. So he managed, the U.S. has succeeded in that, to regain the unity of uh, Europe and NATO under the United States flag. So basically the bottom line is the U.S. is not going to give up on Ukraine. So what's happening in Ukraine now? And what's happening in Ukraine is the the Russian uh, um, accepted, following the referendum, to have two provinces and two cities, and we're talking about the two Donbass uh, provinces, and uh, we're talking about Zoporogia and uh, Kherson, to be um, uh, under Russia. And because of that, Now, the Ukrainian and the Americans have the only possibility to break into these provinces and these uh, uh, cities and to say, we refuse your referendum and we're going to take back all the territory. Now, we see how the Russian uh, military are behaving. They are changing their military tactic to a defense line. And they're no longer attacking on that area. And when you defend your line, the attacker needs four times more, the forces, or three to four times more, to attack and gain the territory. So there is a stalemate in Ukraine, and the Ukrainians are not uh, advancing. And on the other hand, the Ukrainian infrastructure and electricity power of all that 40% has been destroyed, and it is continuing. So Ukraine is no longer capable of offering electricity to Europe, as Zelensky said in uh, last April, May. But now it is going to beg for electricity. Who's going to give him electricity? We don't have electricity for us to give him electricity. So for that, you need a change of status on the ground. And the change of the status need a direct intervention of the Americans or of the NATO countries. Not the Americans, because the Americans push at the others first. And for that to happen, you need something major. You don't need a normal classical war. And something major is for Russia to be accused of using nuclear bomb. If this happens, then you will have immediately the mid, min, mainstream media narrative saying that we need to interfere. We don't want the nuclear Uh, When to come to us and contaminate us, we have to go there. We have to take back uh, the nuclear facility from the Russians. So basically, we have to confront Russia and declare war on Russia. For that, the Russians have been clever. When uh, Minister Shuego, the the Russian defense minister, is contacting everybody and saying, we are not using nuclear bombs. So if somebody is going to use it, that is the Ukrainian, and we know why the Ukrainians want to use the bomb because they've talked before about the Bucha massacre, about all the massacres. We've seen no evidence whatsoever, and on the contrary, we see the international court saying, "Well, if I want to investigate uh, the um, war crime, I will investigate war crime on all parties." And then the Ukrainians say, "Oh no, we don't need you in Ukraine." So there is a possibility. The only possibility for the U.S. to win in the next two years is for NATO forces to go on the ground. And any attack on NATO forces on the ground is, uh, it will trigger Article 5. That means all 30 NATO members, nations, will be involved in a war. That's a, a world war. This is what we're talking about. And the Russian, what they are trying to say, well, instead of having a nuclear war, I'm going going to tell you now, we're not using the nuclear war uh, weapons. You can verify, but don't use it for an excuse to come on the ground in Ukraine.
0: Um, That is terrifying. I mean, to put it mildly, I mean, that is literally Armageddon um, in real terms. Um, Elijah, I want to move to Schultz and Macron. What is going on between these two? I mean, I saw that it seemed that France or some of the other countries in Europe were angry. Um, at Germany because they were spending $200 billion in order to try to solidify their economy. But what what's the beef between these two? I mean, there's reporting coming out that one, um, that Macron snubbed Schultz <laughs> like it's like they hate the Germans. What's going on um, in Europe, meaning the geopolitics or the um, intercontinent or inter country relationships in Europe that is creating this kind of level of strife and conflict between these guys? What
7: when- the French finance minister, Bruno Le Maire, said that the French government is going to spend 100 billion euros over three years to help the people cope with the rising inflation. Now, uh, Chancellor Olaf Scholz said that he's going to spend 200 billion euros to help consumers and businesses to cope with the rising energy prices that we have created. The French were upset and they said, we don't have this money to spend on our people. We're already spending a lot of money. And Italy is saying, well, my external debt has reached 2.47 trillion euro. And I can't continue borrowing more than 150 percent of the gross domestic product and continue asking to support the population because you want me to continue being part of the EU decisions. To be a collective decision and continue cutting the gas that we need and the oil that we need from Russia. So this is going this is creating a problem between the two uh, presidents, the strongest, uh, let's stick to the German and the two French and keep Italy out for the moment. And it's saying, well, we need further coordination. However, this coordination is getting a very clear outcome where the French do agree with the Germans that cutting North Stream 2 and the gas, the Russian gas on Europe is not a good idea. And particularly when the uh, the alarm came from, it's coming from senior people in Europe. I mean, we're talking about, I don't know if you have heard of uh, uh, Ben Van Burden, the UK Shell executive director, that is saying Europe is facing a very painful industrial rationalization due to the energy crisis, and there are going to be pressure on the political system. So he's he's saying there are going to be turbulent streets against the political system. And we have all the head of the industrial companies participating to the meeting in uh, Brussels uh, at the beginning of the week and saying, look, we're not going to hold on for very long. So both countries, French, uh, France and Germany, are aware, and these are the two countries who stood against the U.S. during Donald Trump era when he wanted to cut the flow of gas, but that was the time when uh, Angela Merkel was around, the German chancellor. And now with Schulz, things are different, and the French are asking for more coordination because they are aware they can't hold for very long. and Macron is facing the street. Schultz is facing the street. Both are calling for the same thing. And both leaders are fully aware what is the cause of the uprising in the street and that the street is not going to hold for very long because governments are not going to support us for more than at the end of this current year. So they are a bit preventive and saying, well, let us try to stop the war in Ukraine, hopefully, that we can get some of the relationship back with Russia and lift the sanctions not only on energy, but if you put any sanctions on the ships that carry uh, Russian goods, if you put sanctions on the banks, if you uh, put sanctions on Russia and uh, everything that derive from um, uh, oil, uh, then you are in deep trouble if you need them.
0: No, I, I agreed. I'm curious. What do you think that Angela Merkel would have done differently than Schultz? I mean, Schultz is a weak, 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 astonishingly weak leader, um, to put it mildly. Uh, at the, I, I can't overstate it enough. Um, but what would Merkel have done differently in this situation?
7: I'm going to give you the answer that coming from uh, the prime minister of Hungary, that is a EU uh, member state and a, mem- a member of NATO. He said had. Angela Merkel being around, this war would have never happened. He said that, not me. And why he said that? Because he is the one who said, We depend 90% on Russia on our gas. I am not going to commit suicide and to drag my population with me. Angela Merkel would have said exactly what she said to Donald Trump when he asked her to suspend the Nord Stream 2. She said, No way. I need the gas. I export my gas from Russia. It is the cheapest, and I am not going to commit suicide. I will continue with the project, and she supported this project one hundred percent. That got, by the way, over nine billion dollars, and she would have never accepted like that. The White House, and I, I I repeat, the White House announces that Germany is going to suspend Nord Stream two. Now, this is a real offense and new mitigation to Germany and to Europe when from Washington uh, there is an announcement what Europe is going to do about one of the vital resources of gas and energy that is flowing into the continent
0: since many years. Schultz was standing there when he said that, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And that press conference Schultz was right there. And they turn the media, turns to him and says, well, the president just said he's going to cut down the pipeline. mean, what, what do you, you know, this is not even his pipeline. What do you have to say about it? And he didn't repeat what Biden said in any circumstances, but all things been equal. Yeah. Very weak, to put it mildly. And, you know, all of the pressure that Angela Merkel had to deal with during North Street, because keep in mind, the U.S. was against this all the way through. All the way through. There was never a point where the U.S. wasn't against the Nord Stream 2 stuff because they didn't necessarily want them that wed um, to Russia from the standpoint of the energy markets. Not to mention they didn't want the transfer fees for the Ukraine to be cut. Um, Elijah, thank you for this, man. I always appreciate these conversations. Your knowledge of Europe is always breathtaking to me. Um, Elijah McGee, he's a veteran war correspondent with 35 years of experience in Iran, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Libya, Sudan, Afghanistan, and Yugoslavia. You can follow Elijah on Twitter at... E-J-M-A-L-R-A-I. And you can find us reporting on this website, ElijahJM.wordpress.com. We are going to take your calls. I am going to stick with that promise. And so the number is 202-521-1320. That is 202-521-1320. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas with Malik Abdul. Back in a moment.
2: Fault Lines.
0: Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with Malik Abdul coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C., and we are taking your calls. The number is 202-521-1320. That is 202-521-1320. Apparently, we have a few callers, so we're going to keep it to about two minutes each. Tarif, New Orleans. What's going on, Tarif?
8: Thank y'all for taking my call. First, I'd like like to say for Julian and Sandra, I have four quick comments. First comment is this. Colonel Douglas McGregor uh, was saying that uh, if a, a nuke, uh, dirty bomb is used in Ukraine, then it's rumored that Joe Biden might declare martial law in the United States. That's going to affect the election, or if something.
0: Wait, martial law over something that's taking place in Ukraine? McG- McGregor said that.
8: Yeah, McGregor, Colonel McGregor said that. Now, um, it's, it's a rumor circulating around. Um, my second comment. Um, Ohio submarine has surfaced in the Arabian Sea. It's a nuclear capability uh, submarine. It was the show. It was the show of force to the to Russia, saying that U.S. is ready to um, to go toe to toe with Russia. And those type of submarines don't really surface like that unless they're at port. Third comment. Um, <clears throat> third comment is this: that the. Um, we got twenty-five days left of diesel uh fuel left in the United States. The fourth comment, they uh Pepe Escobar had written a comment saying that um an article that uh uh C drone was found next to Nord Stream two, like some weeks ago, with plastic explosives tied to it and, and it didn't detonate. That's why uh North Stream Two didn't go up in smoke, you know, because it didn't detonate. And I'm going to throw this this last one. And Russia's doing its whole nuclear drills right now, as we speak. Right. Well, we're close to nuclear war, everybody. We got to try to stop it.
0: I mean, Tarif, from your mouth to God's ears. I mean, and I guess God doesn't get involved in this stuff, all things being equal. But look, I agree with you, man. I mean, the framing of this stuff looks horrendous. And I suspect on some level it's brinksmanship. But brinksmanship can always just tip over the balance. I mean, it's the brink for a reason, right? Tarif. Thank you, my man. I always appreciate that. I pulled up the um, Yahoo thing. So right here, the U.S. is just 25 days of diesel supply, the lowest since 2008. Here's what's more alarming than a dwindling oil piggy bank. Right here. The U.S. is facing a diesel crunch as demand... Surging ahead of the winter, with only 25 days of supply left, according to Energy Information Administration, National Economic Council Director Brian Deese told Bloomberg TV that diesel inventories are "quote unacceptably low" unquote and "quote all options are on the table" unquote to boost supply and reduce prices. However, even as stockpiles are being drained, the Biden administration seems to be left with very few sustainable options for long-term relief. There's no magical door. Um,
5: Brave, ATL, what's going on, Brave? Thanks. So I'll try to be brief. Um, I got a couple of points. Um I remember I was speaking to Malik um about around this time last year, as a matter of fact. And uh he he brought the point he kind of asked the question, um, we're all in the conversation on the phone, and he kind of brought the point of would this um, could this escalate to a uh, a nuclear strike or something like that, uh, of that nature? And at the time, I was like, no way. This is a, this is. A, I mean, I, I didn't. I wasn't trying to underestimate the the war effort and how dirty the uh, U.S. Empire could be. But at that time, I was like, nah, they 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 wouldn't go that far. This is not a um, this is not a, a, a world a world war. And I was so wrong. Like <laughs> looking back on it, I was so wrong. Look at where we are and what these people are doing. And they don't, they don't, I can't stress it enough. We are not in normal, we are not in the normal um, times. They they don't care. They're doing what they're doing and it has nothing to do with us. We are all just watching, man. And um, it just really, it really underlines how they are not there for us. They sold us that in the beginning or they, they constantly sell us that, but they're not there for us. Um, and then I wanted to go to really quickly. Um, your conversation yesterday was Robert, with Robert. Oh, right, Patilla, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was amazing
0: <laughs> <laughs> i had no idea he was going to go there i was shocked i thought we were going to have a conversation just about the democrats pulling out i didn't know he was going to go full in biden is the greatest commander in chief ever i didn't know they was going to go there
5: yeah. so this, i guess this is going to be my phone call for uh, uh eating crow like i remember i would call i would call in back when you uh shane was still on the show and i would say listen these people are all in and they're doing this they're, they're not they're not dumb they're not stupid or anything like that you know what i'm saying they're they're doing this and they're lying and they're making money off of it and, and, you know they're, they're all involved but but it, but i never really thought they believed it. yeah some of these guys are true believers
0: i mean even the trump russia stuff i used to work at a democrat radio state well work is too strong i wasn't really paid to do it it was just kind of a pastime thing all of those guys were democrats all of those guys full well believe in the trump and russia stuff like from flesh to bone believed it yep it's amazing Mm-hmm. Like, because it's like, OK, are they being serious? Like, I, I, my thing for me used to always be, are they lying or are they um, in on Like, well, which one is it?
1: I I, di- I don't think Robert was being serious. I, I don't think that. You I, don't think so. And, I, and the reason that I don't is it, it's it's in the opposite direction of what polling says, what you hear. No one believes that everything is going well or even, like, the most egregious one really was Biden. It's like his foreign policy is taking us in a new direction. Yeah, he's a phenomenal world leader. I've never heard anyone, even his own people, have not said that. Mm-mm. So that's why I was like, you don't believe that, bro. Like. I mean,
0: even with the, the 30 progressives, I mean, I strongly suspect that the re- they wouldn't put that letter out there unless it was getting some pressure from below in order to put that out there. Um, the hits that AOC has been yes. getting at
1: her town hall. Yes. Yeah, it precipitated. Yeah.
0: It. And so all things been equal, like I think the point was made by Terrell, they left those guys hung out to dry. It's like your, your political identity on some level is supposed to be at the very least skeptical of war, mm-hmm. if not anti-war. Mm-hmm. And this war has been going on for all of these months. And then you blame your staff? You throw your staff under the bus? And, and then she says, yeah, it was our staff fault, but I take full responsibility. How is it your staff fault, and yeah, you're taking full responsibility? And then, yeah, I, I was shocked by that myself, Brave.
1: You, I, you don't sit on a letter, um, especially a letter like that. That letter doesn't remain in draft, and then it just accidentally. Agreed. Slips out. Yeah, That's I don't buy that premise. Happened, yeah, especially something of that nature. Right. It's like we're heading to nuclear disaster. We need to have a conversation about this
0: war in order to bring this war to a close. And then after criticism, oh, accidentally this came up.
1: And it wouldn't have it wouldn't have helped them in the midterms. I don't think it would have helped them at all. But I think it would have at least positioned that progressive wing of the car- party of at least listening mm-hmm. to the base and the rest of the American people who are saying we don't like this. We don't yeah. like opening our purse. To Ukraine, right? Just opening and just giving it out, dumping it link like check. you in the strip club. Blank check, complete blank yeah. check.
5: Brave, you still there? Yeah, you guys owe me a minute tomorrow or something. <laughs> no, no, no. Go ahead, finish, finish up. We have you have about oh, two minutes. Go for it. No, uh, my p- question to you, Malik. Um, I don't know if Robert is like on MSNBC sometimes or something like that. Maybe he's trying to hold hold his ho- hold his uh, point so that he can still be able to go on. Right, yeah. <laughs> right, right. I don't, I don't, I don't think so though. But here is my question to you, um, because. I said to you the other day about having those kind of conversations, but removing the left and right uh, stance so you guys can just, so, so we, as a, as a people, we can just talk and find solutions, right? This is why I believe that that is a problem. Do you think that he was stressing those points out of uh, loyalty to the Democratic line that that he has to represent? Or what do you think on that? And I'll take it off here.
1: Well, yeah, I don't, I don't think that, um, well, the first thing is that, no, Robert is not on MSNBC or CNN. Believe it or not, he is on Fox a lot. Um, but no, I don't think that Robert, I I, I think that he was towing the line. Uh, that's, that's what I believe. But, and it's interesting because I'm not sure what line. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's it's more of a neocon line that but he was is towing.
0: It? I mean, at this point, it's like, it's backing up Biden. That's when it seemed to right. flip on a dime. It was like, hey, Biden is in the, world. Oh, Biden is the greatest world leader ever. It's like. Dude, where's that coming from? And I'm Russia I was pushed back on its
1: heels. Yeah. Like,
0: it's like, where are you getting that from? They took 20% of the territory. How are you? S- it's just shocking. That's all. I mean, but like you said, maybe, is it the line? I mean, I suspect it's the same line that those 30 Democratic lawmakers. We don't want Biden to look bad. We got to back our guy.
1: Right. We're going to take this boat up.
0: down. Yeah. it's It's... it's
1: yeah, I was shocked by that mean, conversation. Nick, it's not the audience for that, though. No, <laughs> right,
0: <laughs> right. Who are you catering to on smoothing <laughs> with that particular conversation? Biden is great. Russia is on his. Da- yeah, good luck with that. Um, I was like, yeah, this is. I am not the person to have the conversation with, especially um working on this channel. But I want to thank everybody. You hear the music. I want to thank our producers. I want to thank our engineer. I want to thank Malik Abdul for joining us. I want to thank our, our callers. I want to thank our listeners on Rumble. That's where we're appearing live. Definitely hit that like button. And I want to thank our listeners on. Radio. You guys are listening to Fault Lines Radio Sputnik. We'll see you bright and early tomorrow morning, Friday. Have a good one, guys.
2: Fault Lines.